Life's a Mitch. Ladies and gentlemen, this is one hell of an introduction. So bear with me, because even though this is but a small percentage of this gentleman's achievements, I feel it is worth saying. Before I do, I have to mention the loss of an incredibly important woman in my life. My nan Helen recently departed this world, to which I was insanely close with, and was probably, or at least, a massive influence as to why I fell in love with storytelling. Nan handed me two books, just before I departed to live in the UK, circa 2016. Those books were some of her favourites and were written by my next guest, one of which was the Australian Book of the Year, 2000. Those were The Blue Day Book and Tomorrow Adventures in an Uncertain World. I was actually going through my furniture rearranging things as I'm currently painting and I came across these books and remembered why she handed them to me. They were to help me smile and remind me of home. The Blue Day Book is a lesson for cheering oneself up. For those of you who don't know what it is, it is a series of photographs of animals doing wacky and wonderful things with a story written underneath, taking one on a journey to help reflect, accept and put a smile on one's face. Nan was a huge fan of my next guest's work. She wrote in the cover, this is verbatim, To Mitchell with love. I hope you laugh as much as I did reading this book in brackets often. I no longer have blue days. Love and forever, Nan. As I read that out loud, it still brings a tear to my eye. She meant everything to me. And I don't know what compelled me to do so, but I found my next guest on his Instagram and reached out to him and shared this story through the tears. He is very quick to respond and kind enough to accept my offer to appear as a guest today. My next guest is one of the busiest, most talented individuals I will ever have the pleasure of hosting on this show. This is quite the introduction, so please bear with me, as it'll only be a very small fraction of some of the things he's achieved. His list of bona fides is nothing short of incredible. He's affectionately referred to as BTG. He is an Australian who has had an illustrious career spanning many decades and currently resides on the United States of America. My next guest is a man of many talents. This extremely talented award-winning author is the recipient of the six times New York Bestseller Award. He has also achieved numerous industry accolades. Globally, his books have sold in excess of 30 million copies in 115 countries. That is insane. <laughs> wow. He's a two-time Australian Book of the Year winner, both in the year 2000 and 2017, like the one I just mentioned about Nan. He's a former newspaper feature cartoonist for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Village Voice and Go Comics. He is also the recipient of the Order of Australia Medal in the year 2014 for his significant lifetime service to literature and wildlife conservation. This is the equivalent to British Knighthood or the US Presidential Medal of Freedom. My next guest has also worked in TV and film for a series of years. Some of his achievements include, but are not limited to, is the creator, writer and star of Adventure Beast, an autobiographical scripted live action animated wildlife comedy series, now streaming on Netflix. He has hosted and been a featured expert on various shows on the network Animal Planet, including, but not limited to, Little Giants, Fear Island, Fortress of the Bears, and Nature's Strongest Mysteries. This plus working in various roles across other notable networks such as the E! Network, NBC, CBS, to name a few. Some of his achievements in film include, but are not limited to, he was a voice actor in Pixar's blockbuster Finding Nemo, including Gerald the Choking Pelican, you know that one that goes, mind, mind, the greedy seagulls, and much more. He's a voice artist in Twas a Night Before Christmas, and his international bestseller, Penguin Bloom, was made into a major Netflix movie, starring Naomi Watts, Jackie Weaver, Rachel House, 
and Andrew Lincoln and much, much more. The world premiere took place in the 2020 Toronto International Film Festival. He also has a highly decorated military service career in the Australian Army with an extensive and and incredible list of achievements. BTG is quite possibly most well known for his conservation slash zoology works within the animal kingdom. As mentioned, he has worked in some of the biggest networks on the planet. In addition to this, I can't list all of his achievements. I know this is quite a long intro, but this is only but of taste. He also leads, funds, or advises on at least one wildlife conservation program on every continent. He's involved in many zoos and other projects across the planet as well, including but not limited to Taronga Zoo in Australia, the Honorary International Conservation Program in the Fort Worth Zoo in the U.S. He's a board member for the New Zoo in the U.S. and is a life benefactor at the Dural Wildlife Conservation Trust in the U.K. He's also a, a podcaster. He recently launched Semi-Indestructible, The Wild Times. You can find that on Spotify, YouTube, and iTunes, and we'll talk to him about that later on. Uh, he's also got some very cool and curious achievements. BTG produced and sold out two on-stage shows with John Cleese. He's also a cosmonaut graduate from the Russian Space Program of 2004, and much of BTG's body has left scarred and disfigured during some regrettable wildlife encounters. I'll ask him about those too, but despite all this... He's a loving father or two, a devoted husband. BTG is a semi-indestructible literary action man, a closet Broadway lovey, and an inordinate fondness for dangerous animals and fresh-baked cupcakes. With all said that, without further ado, it is my sheer pleasure to introduce Bradley Trevor Grieve. I hope you all enjoyed this podcast. G'day everyone, welcome back to another episode of Life's a Mitch. On this week's episode, you just heard that insanely long an insanely awesome introduction. I'd like to introduce the man himself, BTG, Mr. Bradley Trevor Grieve. How are you today, sir? Good, mate. Nice to be with you, Mitch. Thanks for having me on. Hopefully, did I pronounce that right? I don't want to seem ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a separate issue. It's it's so te- technically it's it's Grieve. It's uh, we come from the Scottish borders, so uh, Peebles is a, a hometown of my family 800 years ago. But Grieve, Grieve, G R E I V E, and. Uh, in uh it's actually means like the foreman of a farm so it's a title as well as a uh, as a name so you know like someone's called a baker or whatever their family used to bake bread so a grieve is the is the foreman of a scottish farm that's who we are we yeah. an holy alliance of the scots and the french to be perfectly honest so um uh, we're, we're, we're not really the best people but i'm proud of us regardless well, I'm Mitch Kelly, and that's Celtic for dickhead. So, <laughs> you know what? It's dickhead in many different tongues, and it's 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 just the name that keeps on giving. Oh shit! Yeah, we're everywhere. Look out, everyone! <laughs> so we're we're <laughs> we're about to find you today. Where are you coming into live from? I am. Oh, well, I I come to you from Tasmania via the Verdugo Mountains in Southern California. There you go. Bit of a whirlwind trip, ladies and gentlemen. How good! So. I um today I was thinking we might go through some of your achievements. You know, you listed bona fides, um, some of your stuff, like some of the stuff you've uh, obviously you're an author, um, some of your conservation work, your television, your movies, and you've done a lot of stuff. My first question is, when did you invent the time machine, and how did you get all these all these feats under your belt? <laughs> can I can I can I tell you the secret? The secret is this, <clears throat> and I I don't want to get too flowery too early, but. You know, it is it is a certain degree of persistence. Obviously, if you just keep grinding, the key is just not dying. That's the key. If you could just 
stay alive. I mean, dying's the least original thing anyone can do. If you can just not get killed and not die and keep trying to do things, you'll be amazed at the resume you put together over the course of your life. Now, I am uh, 53 now, 53. I'm in my 50s. I never thought I'd get past my 30s. I, I was pretty confident when I was a young paratrooper that I was you know, going to die in my 20s. And then, you know, I got into desert racing. I thought, well, that's, I'll be dead before I'm you know, 35. And, and here I am, you know, a dad, two beautiful kids and loving life. Had some very close calls. So, yeah, I've had a, a terrific life adventure so far. I have the x-rays to prove it. I've been rebuilt 21 times. Yeah, My okay. magic trick is, is just not dying. That's, that's the only reason I've got the, the resume that I have. That's cool. Yeah, that was on the um, on the little like info thing you sent out. Like, I was going to ask you about that in your days in the military as well, but I was just hoping to kick things off. I generally like to get the guests to come on to have a lighthearted whinge wine sook. I was just wondering, would you like to join me in having a quick bitchy with Mitchy this week? I'd love to. I need to vent, and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, uh, I I asked the guest if you'd like to go first, or I can. It's up to you. I I so. <sighs> so many different things obviously we're frustrated um I'm, I'm hollywood adjacent over here we have a couple of projects that are going nowhere because of the strike so i'm frustrated that uh, only one side of the uh, strike has turned up to negotiate the other side hasn't that's something that's really frustrating me we can talk about later if you want but um on a lighthearted note i don't like musicians looking at me while they're performing i i, I don't like singers staring at me while they're singing I don't even like birds looking at me while they're singing. If they're looking into my soul, I find that upsetting. A lot of singers do it. Um, it's a bad habit. It doesn't create intimacy. It's off-putting. It's like a dinner theater. You can't eat because someone's like over here, particularly in, in Southern California. My wife's from Texas. We get a lot of mariachi bands. I love their music. Don't come to my table. Don't look at me. Don't sing at me while I'm trying to put food in my face. Uh, ben Lee, if you ever look at his music videos, um, you know, catch my disease. He walks through the crowd staring at people and they all back away, even though he was at the top of his game. It's a it's a mistake as a performer to sing into people's faces. Don't do it to me. I don't like it. Yeah, fair. I don't want spit coming over my table as well. And it's just my luck. I'd be looking straight someone in the eyes. They'd be dropping a dirty bass note and I'd be thinking, are you better than me, fool? <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't like it. I just someone's just staring at you. It's just it's just too much. And uh and it takes away the mystery because the connection you feel is fear and shame and, and awkwardness. And I don't know what they're thinking. They're trying to extend the passion for their song. I respect their commitment to their art. I really do. Uh, but um, yeah, I've, I've never liked it. And uh, it puts me off to a theater for that reason. I hate it when the performers interact with the audience. I just like get on the stage, do your, do your art, mate. But, uh, but don't stare at me while you sing. Uh, it lend in tears. Yeah, fair enough. I guess it would come across as a little condescending and like, yeah, as I said, like, you're looking at you, I'm better than you. So, yeah, I get that 100%. <laughs> I mean, I have no musical talent whatsoever, but next time I'm watching a live performance, if I see that, I'm just going to be start taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it works both ways. I remember hearing stories from Russell Crowe because he cut his teeth uh, doing musical theatre uh before he went on to romper stomper and gladiator fame he uh he would perform at various venues you know in sydney's in the west and uh pretty sure he was doing uh rocky horror and uh playing frankenfurter which is a fairly revealing costume you know and he'd have some unruly members of the audience who would spray his bum with a 
with a water pistol, among other things. Now, Russell Crowe is not a big man. He's a very small man, but he's a very angry man and uh, more than capable of looking after himself. And I remember him getting telling stories about him getting into altercations with the patrons. So I feel it's both ways. You can, you can look on as an appreciative member of the audience and be responsible. At the same time, don't try to, to cut that, to, you know, break, break the fourth wall and, uh, and interfere with the performance. But, um, yeah, I love, I love musical theatre. I love live music but I, I really don't like it when it gets too personal. And maybe that's a failing in me at an emotional level, but I'm prepared to live with it. No, I'd be the same. I wouldn't want anyone to touch me. I mean, if people want to touch my ass, I mean, they can go for it, but I wouldn't like it. It's it's a ridiculous sight. It'd be like two balloons trying to hug each other. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> two, two wombats in a bag. Um, <laughs> no, not judging. I'm, I'm just speculating. Um, anyway, Booties that's, that's my... <laughs> That, that's my whinge. That's my my whinge. It's, it's not a not a serious problem, but it is one that I face in a few countries. And uh, now you know. Fair enough. Well, mine's more of a first world problem. Um, Good. So I, I live in a relatively smallish town compared to LA. It's called Orange, New South Wales. I know um, well. And um, yeah, for those of you who might not be aware, it's it's a cold place. Um, it's mountains and it's wineries and it's mining. And I just got menu log here. And even though it's a small town, they still mess up your order. It's like come home from a twelve-hour shift. I just wanted a burger and fries and a and a and a, and a coke. Someone got my order wrong, and you know maybe it's Universe trying to tell me you're too fat. But I got a a salad, a diet coke, and a note that's saying, no. "I'm sorry, we've run out of we've run out of uh, Greek salad dressing." So here's some Italian. I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> that's a, that's harsh, and particularly when you've worked a long day. I no, that's valid. That's valid. That's poor. And I've worked in the restaurant industry. You know, I, I like every author, every writer, every creative person, you, you work in hospitality at some point. Yeah. I'm not a lifetime professional. I don't pretend to be a veteran, but I did do a, a couple of years waiting tables at a Mexican restaurant in, um, in uh, Queensliff uh, in Sydney. It's the north end of Manly Beach and a place called Tequila Mexican. And it was great. I worked six nights a week there for two years while I was cartooning with the Sydney Morning Herald. And, uh, if I got there before my shift started at seven, I could have a free meal. I could have another free meal after midnight when I checked out. That kept me going when I was a starving artist. Um, but you have an obligation. You have a duty of care to your patrons. Some pretty crazy. I remember some pretty crazy stories there. Uh, nights, people get a bit unruly hitting the sangria. Uh, you've still got to give them a good time as long as they're safe. Uh, I remember there was a famous surfer who I won't name, but he is a famous surfer. And he was hiding in the man's toilet. We had one cubicle toilet, so one physical toilet. Then we had a small urinal for one person. And it was such, there was a separate door on the toilet. So you could go into the toilet area and there could be two different people, someone using the urinal, someone using the toilet. And he would get up on, he wasn't a big guy, he'd stand on the toilet, reach over with a battery powered set of clippers and just shave a big patch out of the patron's hair. Um, and so I had to, as a big unit, I had to go in there and grab him and uh, take him out. And I say throw him out, but not in the real, we love him. He was a good friend, but, um, you know, you're there to, to have a good time. And as a member of the hospitality team, it's my job to ensure everyone does have a good time and goes home with all the hair they came in with. Uh, but yeah, I, I, so as someone who's waited tables, I tend to be fairly sympathetic towards waiting staff and restaurant staff, but. If I order a burger and chips and you send me a salad, it's it's not going to go well. We'll be yeah. having words. And you, um, yeah. you say to the surfer, sorry, mate, you didn't make the cut? Or <laughs> <laughs> No. And he was out. It was funny because he was outside later 
you know, trying to fight cars in the street. Um, and then a few years later, I was living back in, in Tasmania, which is where I'm from. And I was, I was heading into the local town uh, with Bishno. Uh, been to beautiful, Bishno, down there. Yeah, near, beautiful spot. Lovely part of the world. And uh, so I would go in once a week to get my mail from the post office and so forth before going back to the farm. And I ran into him and he was, you know, now the, the, the CEO of a very successful wetsuit company. And he was down there putting together a package for a winter surfing uh, contest, you know, extreme big waves down there at various breaks with some pretty famous big wave breaks in Tasmania. And, um, and most people have heard of Shipstone's Bluff, but there are many others. There's huge waves coming across the Great Southern Ocean. And um, so Cold Water Classic, I think, is putting it together. And he was just, I mean, I loved him before. I loved him, you know, when I saw him again, but he was just a different man. You know, he was very corporate and clean cut. And I was just trying to reconcile this wild surfer shaving guy's heads in the dunny with this very put together uh, executive that I ran into in the middle of Tassie. So, yeah, it was good. But funny story about Bishno and food disappointment, I would you know, go out, pick up a hot meal once a week because it's quite a drive from the farm. And I remember getting a, a barbecue chicken from the supermarket in Bishino and I would almost always get one uh, before driving back to the farm. And it's it's 30 minutes of highway driving, not the end of the world, but still a fair drive. I remember driving back and then realizing I pulled into the farm that I left my chicken hanging in a bag on the back of the, uh, the shopping trolley oh, and no. just being... <laughs> devastated because it's sitting there in the supermarket locked up and I couldn't get back in time to pick it up. But I know that pain. I know that pain. So I think your whinge is, is very valid. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I've been down to um, Bishanau and sort of, we did a, an intrepid tour of, sort of circa 17. We went to there, the Bay of Fires, Racing A. We sort of went all over and um, yeah, some of the big swells that you could see coming across. And um, a friend of mine who used to live in Canada, um, I ran into mm. a former colleague of his, where he was working with her over there. We started, I started chatting to her. She's like, yeah, I know Nathan. I'm like, get out of town. It's a small world. So from Canada to Freycinet, um, and Bichino, there you go. Small, that's the if one thing I get out of this life. It is a very small world. So, um, it is. And I know, I know Bathurst and Orange area very well. I've done a number of events out there. I used to race dirt bikes and there'd be a number of events out that way. Um, no, it's a it's a great place, and you know you've got uni there at Bathurst, not too far away. So, in addition to the things you mentioned, the primary industries that are out there, particularly wine and and mining, and grazing, you've also got uh, a university sitting near, nearby. So, it's quite a, a, a quite a diverse mix of people out that yeah. way, which makes it all the more enjoyable to visit. Hundred percent. I'm I've been here about two years. I grew up in Newcastle, so you know, mm. and my dad's actually from this part of the world. So it's kind of like coming home in its own little way I used to come here a fair bit as a kid and Lovely. Um, there you go and Full circle. Nice, it is a nice part of the world but i always um i always like to use it like as a transition to if you take yourself back to as far back as you can remember the youngest btg you can recall do you remember the first thing that mm -hmm. you were ever a fan of whether it was like a animals or books or cartoons or something the first thing sorry that i what that you were ever a fan of your first fandom it can be anything Look, yeah, first fan, but definitely it was physically, it was animals. I mean, I, you know, as I like to say, I fell in love with animals, you know, wildlife and wild places as a little kid. I never really grew up. You know, it's been a part of my life ever since I was a little kid. My mom and dad were running a hospital in uh, in Hong Kong, a place called Tsunwan, which is in the New Territories. When I was a kid, it was it was just mostly shanty towns and 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 scrubby hillsides, and um, 
it was at the end of the MTR, end of the train line, end of the Star Ferry line. So the edge of the realm of Hong Kong, so to speak. And now it's a massive city. Um, when I was a kid, the hospital there, was what they ran was, was the biggest building in the area. Now you can't even see it. It's gigantic high rise, much bigger than Sydney, you know. Anyway, um, I was four, three or four. And I, you know, in those days, childcare was very different. You know, you, your mum and dad went to work. My mum was a nurse. My dad was a surgeon. They work at the hospital. My sisters were older. They were at school. And I was allowed to do whatever I want as long as I stayed in the compound of the hospital and the apartment buildings. And so I would just wander around on my own, climbing buildings, climbing walls, catching lizards and snakes and frogs and whatever. And I would bring these critters home and, uh, you know, collect the chrysalis of moths and butterflies and put them in a, in a terrarium, you know, and, and they'd hatch in my room at night or during the day. It was just wonderful. So that was my, my first love was just finding these animals and exploring what to me at the time felt like a very big world, but in retrospect was quite a small enclosed space. But that's been a life passion. But in terms of being a fan, you would extend that to the first books I really fell in love with uh, about animals were by the British zoologist and author and humorist, Gerald Durrell. And Gerald Durrell wrote My Family and Other Animals, um, which is the most famous book of his family in 1939 in the Greek island of Corfu. Uh, birds, uh, birds, Beasts and Relatives, Fillets of Place, Three Singles to Adventure, uh, Catch Me in Colobus, Sue in My Luggage. Uh, you know, I could go on and go on. Anyway, he was for a long time the most successful English language author on the planet. And his brother, for those of you that are book snobs, his brother was... Um, uh, so wrote the uh, Lawrence Durrell, Larry is went by, but Lawrence Durrell, who wrote the Alexandria Quartet, which is one of the first really successful series of literature, you know, uh, literary novels where you had the unreliable narrator. That wasn't really a thing until he did it. Uh, and what he did is in those, in those books, those four books, it tells the same story from a different point of view with a different outcome four times in a row. It's incredibly bold, this adventure that happens um, you know, while he was in, in Cairo. So, uh, sorry, Alexandria, obviously, Alexandria Quartet. In real life, he was in Alexandria in Cairo during the war, working for the Air Force. So I just fell in love with his younger brother, Gerald Durrell's books about animals and how he was really one of the modern fathers of, of, of conservation zoos, a zoo that was more than just a place you go to spend a few dollars, buy some popcorn, look at a monkey, but it could actually be a fully functional, integrated uh, wildlife conservation facility with research and funding for projects in the field and ways to educate the public to care about endangered wildlife and ecosystems. And he was the guy that did that. And so I just thought his books were so funny. And I was a little older than that. I was probably about 10 or 11. And these are books for adults. And I saw my mother laughing hysterically at this book and I didn't know what it was. And so when she finished it, I asked to read it. And I obviously didn't understand all the jokes. Some of the adult jokes went over my head. But that was the first book that I laughed out loud at. And that was it. And if you look at my career to this point, for all the detours that I've had, uh, you know, literature, humor, wildlife, adventure, it all started with Gerald Durrell when I was a kid. Well, that just answers my next three or four questions. So how good the gift that keeps on giving. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm here, to do your, I'm, here, I'm here to do your job, Mitch. <laughs> how good. So... Okay, so when you've grown up, you've, you've, you've been exposed to these books and you were catching frogs and stuff. And so you obviously you made it through school and 
after school, is that when you joined the military or were you writing at this point or what happened next after that? I was cartooning um, mainly, which is really, even though it's, it's drawing, it's, it's a writing art. Uh, I was cartooning and I was involved in all the school plays and you know, doing humor pieces and, and satire for the school. I, I enjoyed that and got in a lot of trouble for that too, but uh, I enjoyed it. I definitely had a creative passion then. I was good at two things. I was good at that and I was good at playing sport and particularly rugby. I was a pretty good rugby player. And I got an offer to play semi uh, sort of professional rugby, even as a teenager for, uh, for group 18, the Cudgeon Hornets, um, you know, rugby league. And, um, <laughs> and um, I didn't do it. Uh, my parents didn't want me to, to do it. And uh, so I never got to play, but it was, you know, I loved the game. Absolutely loved it. And I was thinking about a career in industrial design. I really enjoyed, I did uh, what we call then industrial technology, which is really, you know, basically woodworking, but you wear a tie. It was basically that, you know, and you'd, you'd make a few projects in timber, but you'd have to do an industry study and design it using various techniques. And anyway, the point was, I really enjoyed that. And uh, so I was going to apply to, uh, <clears throat> to uh, is it QIT, the Queensland University of Technology? Is that what it is, QT? Anyway. I think so, yeah. I think there was a couple of courses. That was one that I really liked. And then a funny thing happened. I was with my mom. So it's the end of high school and I did pretty well in high school. So I, I had options and I was pretty much locked in on going to study in Queensland. And then I went with my mom to do the supermarket shopping and I ran into some army recruiters. And at that point, I remember I'm in my fifties. This is a while ago. They just bought the Sikorsky S70 Blackhawk. That was the new in-service helicopter and they needed pilots. And I had the academics to back it up. I, had, I was interested in it. My dad and I had gone on a camping, hunting, fishing trip to the Northern Territory. Uh, a friend of his owned a number of different uh, massive stations out there. Uh, Van Van Springs, Mary River West, uh, Mount Ringwood. Yeah, about a million acres all told. And um, we were you know, shooting feral pigs um, and uh, catching barramundi. It was a good time. And I happened to be there for the bush muster. And in those days, they had two different populations of, of, of livestock. They had the introduced Asiatic water buffalo, which at that point, they were making decisions on whether they would get to domesticate or eradicate. If you want to keep them on your property, you had to domesticate them, that is, dip them and drench them so they didn't have any parasites. And then you clip their, the top of their horns to indicate that they'd been treated. Um, and if you didn't do that, they all had to be eradicated. So they'd shoot them out. Um, and then they had this, I think it's a Brahma Santa Gertrudis cross, you know, classic wild bush cattle that has that tropical ability to, to flick the ticks off itself and so forth. And they survive up there. I think if you study the history of Australian exploration, the big issue was, you know, these, these graziers, these, and these, uh, you know, beef farmers, they're trying to, they're trying to get their livestock across the country trying to find fresh water, trying to deal with the local parasites. And it's just a death march for these big, heavy set European cattle. So when you started getting these cattle breeds uh, from Asia and from the Americas, suddenly you had cattle that could survive. So you had these two different groups. Anyway, these properties are so big, they don't even fence them. They're too big to be fenced. And so when they do the muster, they send out for a, not a little while, but I mean days, a week, they start bringing the cattle 
with these helicopters and scaring them in through the bush and bringing them into this vast plain. And then they had these two gigantic uh, cattle shoots that end up in two different pens. And that's when they would separate the water buffalo from the cattle. I'm watching this pilot and he's insane. And he's got this small, I don't know if it was a Bell Jet Ranger, some small helicopter. He has a 44-gallon drum of Avgas in the passenger seat to counterbalance his weight so that, so that the plane, the, the, the chopper sits perfectly straight. So he's turned himself into a bomb. And then he's pushing at some point to keep the cattle moving. And they go through the scrub or some trees. He would put the actual canopy of the helicopter he put it into the tree and just pushed through with the blade just above the trees. I mean, it was mad. And then he'd turn so close to the ground that the blades would kiss the ground. And I was just thrilled. You know, I'm a teenage, a teenage kid watching this with my dad, and I, I got to watch it for two days. And so when I came across that recruiter's caravan parked in um, the, the car park of Woolies, and tweed heads and i just said i'm going in there so my mum was shopping i sneak in there and uh i gave my background i gave them my report card and they said you know you could you could do this but you you know you might have the grades to get into the royal military college duntroon you can still be a pilot but you can also be an officer have a whole career and that's how i kind of got sucked into it was just wanting to fly choppers but the twist in the story is once i got into duntroon and that was a whole adventure on its own it was pretty tough going within a very short space of time i lost interest in flying helicopters and i wanted to be a paratrooper and so i spent the rest of my time working my way through to get that opportunity and for my sins uh, i got it and played a lot of rugby as well although i switched from league to union uh which which i loved um but it was it was a great experience but it was just funny how it worked out if i hadn't have agreed to help my mum with the shopping i never would have joined the army that's i love hearing stories i I love stories that's why i do this is exactly the reason why um so how were you in how long were you in the military for because i see that you're you said you said you're a paratrooper you have Mm -hmm. an incredible list of bona fides how long did you serve for not that long uh, about three or four years um so what happened was i got in went through duntroon Oh, that was an interesting twist to that. So I had a childhood asthma condition that had gone away as often. It was very mild and it had gone away through puberty as your body hormones change. So I was doing fine. I was quite a successful uh, you know, student athlete. Um, good sprinter, played rugby, all the rest of it. So I didn't have a problem, but there was some issue with one of the tests. They do a thing called a histamine challenge test, where you just basically run on a treadmill while breathing in... Um, it's it's so when you take an antihistamine it, it clears your lungs up they pump it through with the histamine that actually makes your lungs shut down and they test your performance and i was right on the cusp and because it's so hard to get into duntroon back at those, those days they'd take 200 a year and half of them would fail anyway so you're meant to be in sort of the top six percent academically and physically in the country and so they'd get to be choosing anyway they deferred it and i had to go back for more testing so in that time, I worked around Australia, working on various farms, uh, just trying to make some money, have some fun, picking grapes and currants and stuff in Mildura, potatoes in Gippsland, Victoria. And, um, you know, but uh, yeah, it took me a while. So I came in a little bit late. I got in and it was just tough sledding. It was, it's a tough, it was a very difficult, challenging time, even if you want it. 
and my family wasn't a military family. I mean, my my uncle was an F-111 pilot in Vietnam, but the rest of us, it's not really who we are. We're medical family teachers. So I was a little bit of a black sheep just for doing it. Um, and I really put myself out there to go and do this and took a lot of criticism from friends and family and people at school and uh, who didn't appreciate how special it was to, to be able to go to Duntroon. And I remember hating it so much that there was a time that I was actually, I was too proud to quit. There's no way I was going to quit, but I hoped that I would get seriously hurt and I could then go home say, well, that was, I gave it a go. And I used to do this thing in the barracks. I would always sprint up and down the stairs, not because I was gung-ho, because I was secretly hoping that I would trip and fall and break my pelvis. And then you don't come back from that when you've got a load-bearing job. So I kind of hoped that would be the case. I never did. I never fell badly. I did, I did my ankle once. Um, I broke my jaw. Uh, when I, I remember fracturing my hand playing rugby there. I remember one time uh, the army is so funny. They said, okay, alphabetically you turn up, go to the dentist, they do the x-rays and then just order you to turn up and have your wisdom teeth taken out. And I was on the rugby team and I had my wisdom teeth taken out and I was told I wasn't allowed to play for three weeks. Well, two of those weeks were in the, in the bush on exercise. So I've got these big holes in my mouth bleeding while I'm out in the bush without able to brush my teeth or whatever. The third week, they go, fine, you're cleared to play. First game back against Royals, which is the best, you know, traditionally the best rugby club in, in the ACT and dirty dogs too. Um, you know, rich kids, uh, great players. You know, George Gregan came through there. Tough, tough company. It was just bad luck. The guy dropped an elbow right in the side of my jaw when my teeth had come out and it just snapped on the spot. So, um, you know, I had a lot of minor injuries like that. I remember down at Puckapunyal, big military range there in, uh, in Victoria, and we were working with armored personnel carriers. And I was a machine gunner then, and I was super pumped up. And my best friend, uh, Steve Nichols, was also the best man at my, my wedding, and he was working overseas uh, in the UAE killing ISIS and took the time to come back and put a uniform on. We went down the aisle. He and I were super pumped up, and uh, the door comes down on the APC, we're out the back, straight on my guts and crawling and firing, all the rest of it. So pumped up, didn't realize I'd landed on a rock and had pulled my kneecap open and uh, got to the end of the of the exercise and I sort of stand up and my legs all wet. I don't know why. I sort of pull my pants, uh, you know, my pant leg up and have a look and there's my knee kneecap flapping open in the, in the breeze like a cat door. Oof. And, you know, and I remember both occasions when I needed surgery for the broken jaw and to repair my knee, uh, they'd send you to a private hospital to get the, the initial surgery, but you'd recover in the military hospital. I think it was, was it five field or one field? Anyway, what was hilarious about that, that I've loved to this day, it's really helped me, is they don't take it easy on you. So you're in a hospital, when you're in the private hospital, it's great, you know, television, the meals, all very nice. Everyone does everything, you get clean pajamas, clean bed sheets. In the military hospital, everybody gets up at 6 a.m. and you make your own bed. Okay, you're on one leg. Okay, then hop around and do it. So we would hop around the bed and make the bed and then with clean sheets and then you could get back into it. Uh, it was quite funny. Anyway, despite my best efforts to destroy my body, I survived it and I graduated and um, I did well enough to to get my dream posting, which was to 3RAR Para and, uh, and off we went. But I just, you know, I promised myself that I would never whitewash the difficulty of it 
some tremendous friends while I was there. Many have gone on to very successful careers in the military and elsewhere. But Duntroon, as proud as I am to be a graduate, I remember it being a real struggle. And uh, even with two weeks to go before graduation parade, thinking, I just can't make it. It's just so awful. I hate it so much. And I, and I know it's, it sounds hypocritical because I did love it as well. And I'm very proud of it. But I remember it being really, really tough. And so no one was more surprised than me that I actually got, got through it. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, it all came down. I was in 3RER and uh, Paris. And I was loving it. Absolute dream come true. Incredible soldiers to serve with. Uh, sadly, as you know, the parachute unit has been disbanded now. Um, but at the time, it was just the most glorious company I could possibly imagine. And then I was up doing an exercise in the Northern Territory and uh, contracted a tropical respiratory infection and it just shut my lungs down. And when we got back to barracks in those days, it was Holsworthy, uh, sort of southern Sydney, and it was winter. So in the Northern Territory, it was still hot and sweaty. And we get back to barracks and it was cold and wet and my lungs just shut down and it brought back that childhood asthma condition among other things. And, uh, and I was no longer what we call um, FE fit everywhere, which is you need for any kind of elite combat role. You need to be FE. I was downgraded to CZ combat zone exempt, which is the opposite of what I was doing. So I had to make a decision. Do I stay in the military and take an instructor's role or a desk job at, uh, you know, Russell offices or do I, do I try to get out? And I was very lucky to get some good advice from a friend of mine who I was serving with a SAS, a New Zealand SAS guy. And he said, Hey, if you have other plans and this isn't working out for you, why don't you transfer the inactive army reserve? And then you can be out in a couple of months and get on with your life and do something else. And we used to go skydiving together. He was a scary bastard. He was very funny. And he used to pack his parachute like someone stuffing a lunch into their shoulder bag on the way to the, it's just the sloppiest job I've ever seen in my life. And we would jump out of the planes together and these parachute would be packed so badly that the various components, for those that don't understand a parachuting, it's not just one pop, like in a cartoon, there's a thing called a riser and sliders and these things help open the parachute slowly so that the force of opening doesn't explode the parachute. I remember jumping out with him and it would just explode. His whole parachute would just poof, gone. And he'd fall another thousand feet before he got his reserves. But he was a terrific mentor at the time, a fun guy and a great colleague. And so I got out and started again. So I went from achieving a dream to be a paratrooper commander to losing it all and starting over again in my early mid twenties. Yeah, it's a, sounds like quite an illustrious career and some incredible people met, um, some crazy people. And it's good that you've, you know, kept in contact with them. And as you said, they've gone on to have long illustrious careers and, Look, you gave it a, a hell of a go by the sound of things. and I did. I was very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's I was. Cool. I mean, it just, it's, it's, a lot of it's just like the roulette wheel, you know, it's whatever comes up. And uh, I was very lucky in that. Um, I mean, at the time, I was a little bit annoyed. I didn't get any leave really because there's a cycle for a lot of these specialist courses. And I was, I was put on the, what was at that time called heavy weapons, now called direct fire support weapons. Um, so our job, was to you know, jump out of the planes with these sort of heavy armaments for tank killing and bunker busting because the primary job of the of the airborne forces is to take a point of entry for the rest of the army so you jump into an airfield and then you take over the airport and the airfield and everything else which are usually very well defended so i was put on that string and then uh you know so i would spend every time everyone went on leave i would spend two weeks four weeks six weeks at the school of military engineering or somewhere else studying to not just master a new skill 
of becoming an instructor in it in order to take over that particular unit down the road, that special unit. Now, in the end, just as I was taking that role, that's when my lung shut down. I didn't get to do it. So it was a bit of a bummer. But I'm still grateful because I packed so much into that relatively brief time. And even though in the context of my life now, in my 50s, looking back, it was all over so quickly. You know, I've worked on movies that took longer to make than my military career. Uh, TV shows took longer to make than my military career. I still identify as a young paratrooper from back in those days and the values and the friendships of those men and what we did is very much a part of, of who I am, even though physically, obviously that, that ship sailed a long time ago, the mentality um, and just the, the wild joy of spitting in the face of God and getting away with it. I, I just love that. And I, I try to live up to that as much as I can. Well, that's good. Like, you know, you, you take your past experiences you take the best parts of it, prepare yourself for it. That's all, all we can do. And yeah, that's, that's, that's a great story. I love, I'm loving this. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you, so three years in the military, you said, was it long after you left that you started writing full time or how long had it been until you started till you released your first book or what happened after the military? A, it took a, it took a minute. So even while I was at Duntroon, I was, again, I, I really enjoyed the creative side of things. And I'd write, you know, satire, comics, funny articles for the paper. And uh, I did that while I was in three hour parrot too. I wrote funny cartoons and funny satire articles for the military paper, the army newspaper and our internal papers. And, uh, you know, we had like a drama thing. We put on a student review when I was at Duntroon and just basically take the piss out of everybody. And I enjoyed that. So I was already doing that. And I was thinking about that. So when I got out, I started straight away, but it took me a long time. So I wrote, it took me, I think, seven or eight years before my first book was published. And in that time, I think I wrote seven other books. I wrote a personal story about my time in the service. No one published that. I wrote a series of kids' books. No one published those. And one of my secret passions is, is, is modern art and art criticism. And I even wrote a funny book about art criticism. And... Uh, no one published that. I wrote a book on creative thinking. No one published that. So the Blue Day book, uh, which is what brought us together, there it is. The Blue Day book was a very different kind of book. It's a gift book. It's uh, taking beautiful and funny photographs of animals. It's a visual narrative. And then you have this very simple story underneath that linked together is basically a little book about perspective. Now, I wrote that. I'm out of the military nothing's happening for me. I'm poor, as you wouldn't believe. I'm sleeping on the floor of this crappy little studio by Central Station in Sydney. Uh, sort of every time a train would come in, it sort of rang termites, snow down, there's rats would scurry around. It was above an illegal SNM brothel called Threshold and then a Korean karaoke club called um, uh, Ding Dong Dang. And it burned about six months ago. I, on the paper, you saw those two buildings go up by Central Station. The green one, that was my building. Um, number seven, uh, Randall Street, um, off of Chalmers and Castle Road. That was it. That was where I used to live and work. So I was really struggling, had no money. My mum used to send me jumpers and blankets to get through the winter. And it was really tough going, really pretty miserable. And I wrote that. It was such a different sort of thing. I had this idea when I was a kid and my mum and dad were running hospitals in Hong Kong and then Singapore. The only English, this is in the 70s, the only English language magazine we would get in those days were National Geographic and uh, Life magazine, which is an American magazine. And uh, that was my religion. 
reading National Geographic and then Life Magazine. But in Life Magazine, I would always go to the back page and then have this little thing, this photo page called Life Smiles Back. It'd be a really great photograph of something, an animal, a person, something crazy, and you know, a cheesy caption. And I thought that'd be a great way to tell a story. And so I took what I was feeling, which was pretty depressed, pretty, pretty worthless. I'd gone from being a pretty special person as a, as a paratrooper commander to a, an impoverished wannabe author, artist, whatever you want to call me. And I put those feelings into my book. And I, and I, I thought back on my experiences of people who had it so much tougher than me. And one of the defining moments to me when I was at Duntroon was I was selected for an international military exchange with the, with the Thai, uh, the army in Thailand and with their military academy at Chulakom Klao. And they took us out to the Thai-Cambodian border. We did a tour there, there for a couple of days. And, you know, just what you see there and there's all these refugees. Those days we're talking about towards the end of the terror of Pol Pot. And so we were there, you know, Highway 1 where Pol Pot came down, finally, you know, surrendered. But it was thousands of people in these, in these refugee camps and had no hope of being allowed to go any further. You know, they weren't going to let them go on to do anything. Uh, Thailand wouldn't let them in, Vietnam wouldn't let them in. And so these, and, and the Khmer Rouge at that time had infiltrated these camps and they were using them to dump their wounded soldiers because I don't know if you, how much you know about this, but when you're fighting a force, in many ways, wounding the enemy soldier is better than killing him because it's a massive drain on resources and morale to look after that injured soldier. Um, and so the Khmer Rouge would sneak these guys in, tell them they're refugees, and you couldn't tell them apart. You couldn't, he wasn't wearing a sign saying, I'm a, I'm a, a Khmer Rouge soldier. He just says, you know, oh, I don't know what happened. Someone was shooting. I got shot or a, a landmine in my field, whatever. And the Khmer Rouge would dump their wounded soldiers onto the United Nations uh, refugee camps. So this is two things. First of all, now the peace process, now that now the humanitarian uh, aid instead of it looking after people who really need the help is now an unwitting partner to the enemy combatants by taking away their logistics obligation to their own wounded. So they're spending rations and, and medical supplies and personnel time onto these soldiers. At the same time, now these Khmer Rouge soldiers have got a foothold in the camp and they start influencing things and bullying people and running things. So it was this bizarre, inept, well-meaning Thing. And I would never have taken it away. A lot of people lives have saved there, but I think back to that and I didn't see, I wouldn't say none, but I saw hardly any young men between the ages of sort of four and 40 that had all their hands and feet, you know, and people, landmines, torture, um, shot. And, and yet they're so full of hope. The fact that they were alive and they had such a difficult road ahead of them. And their optimism. And I remember thinking right then that despite the fact that I'd committed to putting myself in harm's way, despite the fact of all the sort of dangerous things that I had done and was prepared to do in order to be a solution to this problem, I, I wasn't going to move the needle. You know, there was never going to be enough bullets to kill all the bad guys, never enough band-aids to ease all the suffering and never enough money to make all this pain go away. And I started even then thinking that one day I needed to do something else. And then when I was out and I started writing the Blue Day book, that came back to me. And in the simplest terms, it's just, it's just like, you know, if you're alive, you're still in the game and you have 
a chance tomorrow to try again. A lot of these people didn't have that. You know, yeah, I'm full of titanium pins and scar tissue. It's almost all of it's my fault, but I'm still walking and talking. So I've still got a chance to, to make it right tomorrow and try again. And that's the greatest privilege in life, in my opinion, is having, is having the opportunity to make it right tomorrow. And, and that optimism that comes with it. And I promised myself thinking about these people that I saw um, on the Cambodian border in those days. I remember just, I just, I was, that's it. I'm never going to complain again. I'm done. No, until today with bitching with Mitch about you seeing in my face, which I still hate until then. I just, I'm not going to complain. I just can't. I can't in good conscience, having seen that level of suffering, complain about anything. I just don't have that right. And that is what I put into the Blue Day book. And it was a book for myself at a time when I needed it most. It was more than just telling myself to suck it up. It was about, hey, look for the beauty and the opportunity of being alive. And, and then I took that out. I just, it felt different. There was another book like it. I chose the shape. I drew the shape on the back of a napkin. A serviette. I said, that's the size it should be. It wasn't even a shape that existed at that time. And I took it out and everyone said no. And every publisher in Australia said no. Random House with Jane Palferman said that she would do it, but she couldn't. But then her company, uh, they go to a thing called the, uh, it's like a, I think it's called a publishing committee and the different publishers within the publishing house vote and they voted it down. And then I took it to the UK. No one said yes there. They all said no. I took it to New Zealand. I took it to the US. And dozens and dozens of publishers said no. And then two publishers, one in San Francisco, 10 Speed Press, great little publisher, another one in Kansas City called Andrews McNeil. They took an interest. I, I got an agent and I said, who has the best editor? It was Chris Schilling, Kansas City. And they took the book on. And having got it up in America, I then brought it back to Australia and said, hey, can you join this print run? And they did. And, you know, 12 months later, it was on the New York Times and my life just changed. But that was the journey for that book. Love hearing that. I um, Two things I take out from that one. You're exactly right. I mean, we, we as a society, and I'm guilty of this too, we focus on the stuff we don't have as opposed to the stuff we have. And um, as you said, this book connects us, which I'll talk about briefly in a second. That's all right. But I think, yeah. um, you know, if you count your blessings as opposed to don't count your defeat, you got two feet in a heartbeat and that reigns so true. And hearing about those poor people in Cambodia and, you know, it makes you go one, I'm grateful to be in a nation where we can live our dreams and be free and be safe from tyranny and civil mm -hmm. unrest and everything. And, and two, you know, we, you are alive and this is, um, this reigns more because yeah, then passed away about six weeks ago. So, and when you lose people close to you, you, it makes you sort of reset and go, okay, I need to do the things that I've been putting off. And I, I'm like yourself. Like I, if I want something, I'll go for it. In many ways, I'm a bit of a black sheep in my family too. Like my, my, my brother's married, my sister's had her kids and like my sister does her own thing. And, but my mum, like they've all been structured and oh, no, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. I was like, I'm like, no, I want to do it now. So I've gone overseas to work in the UK. I've moved somewhere new to, chase my, i'm doing this like this is a passion project and maybe one day my, my my name will be up in lights but i don't do it for that i do it for the fact because i want it and like yourself yeah, okay. like you persevere you strive and you keep going and before you know it you've got yourself a book of the year 2000 um so mm. i love that story can i can i take a couple of minutes to tell you a little bit about nan and what these books sort of mean to us i would right? i would love to because i mean you you sent me that note out of the blue yeah, and 
and I, you know, I'm not famous for doing media. I like to be left alone. I, I don't ever let journalists in my house on my farm. It just doesn't happen. I just yeah. don't, you know, and I never do it. But what I always try to do, particularly since we moved to the US, is when I get a request from home, I I try to make time for it. And when I got your letter and you told me the story you're about to share, I just said, yeah, I got to have that conversation. Well, I appreciate it. And so for those of you, it's, I sort of mentioned in the intro, so Nan passed away and these books, so she also gifted me tomorrow as well. Um, I wrote that after 9-11, September 11, when I was, I landed in the US for a big book tour on 9-11. We were the last planes to touch down in America because the two flights from Sydney, one from Sydney, one from Melbourne, they couldn't, we didn't have enough fuel to divert to Mexico or Canada. So we landed just after the towers fell and uh, a crazy experience being stuck in America at that time and some of those reflections on the way the world was shaping up and how important it was to put negativity in context and to, to bring positivity to the fore, regardless of, of whether we were going to hell on a sled or not, that became that book. So that's one of my favorite books. And that was the story behind that one. Anyway, but she said she, she gave you the Blue Day book and she gave you Tomorrow, oh, Adventures in Uncertain World. Well, I think you stuck to landing with this as well because it also makes me feel feel happy so basically what nens nens has a lot of your books or she had a lot of your books and before i moved out to the uk you know i was saying i'm a little bit nervous like i don't know anyone i'm not from this grand new adventure all this stuff and um she always used to say like you know look at Mm. she used to call me pet and she said went before you go uh, you know just read these books and they'll make you feel better and (laughs) um and she gave me a notepad she said write stuff down she said i know you like writing so express how you're feeling and then didn't she wasn't a woman of like she didn't have much materialistic things but she was just loving and she said mitchell when you're down look at the pages you will feel great have a wonderful time in the uk love Nen. i will miss you so that's for tomorrow and the other one as uh-huh. i said was um to mitchell with love hope you laugh as much as i did throughout this book in brackets she put often i no longer have blue days now and forever then so i found these i'm painting my house i just bought my first one, and um, Good on you. I was thank you. I was just going through everything and sort of, you know, starting to tear up. So I pull it out and I'm start reading it and I'm start to giggle. I thought I forgot about some of these wacky and wonderful photos, and yeah, it tells it. They both tell great stories, and you know, it's about oh, what I took from it was, you know, you yeah, we go through crappy things. Days can be blue, but sometimes you have to accept it. Accept, you know, and you're alive, and you can you can do better things tomorrow, and through those tears and I don't often cry, but I then rawly emotionally just sort of thought, I wonder if he's got an Instagram. I'd like to share this story. I don't know why, but I did. And <laughs> here we are today. And uh, yeah, your, your book made the woman who made m- many people smile, smile consistently. And through that oh. and so much more of your work, like we'll talk about your television stuff soon, but I wanted to say thank you. Like, you brought joy to the greatest woman I've ever met in my life. So thank you for, oh, for that much Thanks, more. Mate. That's, that's really humbling to hear that. And uh, first of all, I'm sorry that you lost your man. I'm glad that she was such a beautiful part of your life. And what a great gift to have your parent or your grandparent encouraging you to pursue your dreams and, and also preparing you uh, for the challenges that are ahead. You know, she's was wise to because I've obviously – spent some time living overseas as you have and it's not easy i remember the first time i i came here 
I mean, I've been coming back and forth for business, you know, trying to pitch projects and books and TV and film or whatever for a long time, 20 something years. But I only moved here for a project with Disney in 2009, 2010. I didn't know anybody. Didn't know anybody. And it's a very lonely thing when you not just move cities, but move countries. And um, I'm impressed that your nan knew that and and prepared you for some of the hardship of starting out from scratch because it's not easy and um and yeah it's exciting and there are new opportunities you might not have at home and all the rest of it but it's, it's i love that she sensed that i don't know did she did she do some travel in her youth had she been around the world or done various no, she, things or she never left australia we're barely lucky to get her out of the state isn't that funny well maybe she just sensed it from the fact that you know the idea of travel seemed onerous to her um, but yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those things that, uh, it takes a lot of out of you and you wake up in the morning knowing nobody and go to bed that night knowing nobody. It takes time to build up those social networks and professional networks, even if you got a job, you know? Um, so I love that she, cause those two books, I think are perfect for that. Um, you know, trying to put things in perspective, uh, they're both different approaches to the same subject. Um, I love that she chose the books. That's that's a really nice story. So I'm humbled by that story. And I'm, I'm glad to be connected to you and Nan. And we also watched The Penguin Bloom as well on Netflix uh, a few years ago as well. And she thoroughly enjoyed that, which we'll talk about soon. But um, Oh, good. But, that's good. You saw that? Did she cry your face off? Yeah, it was It was actually, it was a really humbling story and well acted. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. We don't, or me, myself, I don't take enough time to watch some Australian movies. Like, and I... Um, so it was nice to sort of stop and go, okay, build a bit of home here. Um, and sort of I always try and make a bit of time for Australian series and shows and movies. And I recently went out to parks to see the dish and I'll, I'll maybe go back and rewatch that movie. Oh as yeah. Well. Did you? That was cool. Um, That's a great but movie. I, but I guess like with, with all that, and thank you for contributing to so much with all that. So you started writing, before the year 2000 you get the book of the year 2000 and obviously in 2017 as well from that point to now you've sold 30 over 30 million copies mm. and in 115 countries like does the paratrooper the the author in sydney struggling to to you know make ends meet to this point now does that just absolutely blow your mind because <laughs> it does uh, mine those are in some insane numbers and you should and congratulations on that that's awesome Thank you. Um, yeah, it does. I, I remember it's, you know, you get, I'm not saying used to it, but now, I mean, it gets to a point where you stop counting the numbers. It, just, it stops being about that. But yeah, that first million, that was a big deal. And um, But it was before that even, because I was really struggling. And um, I'll tell you the moment where I knew I'd made it. And I use the term loosely, but I'll tell you what that moment. So I was living, as I said, I had this little studio, uh, Garrett, artist Garrett there in, um, now, burnt to ashes, but it was there on Mundell Street next to the Central Station in Sydney. And some great people there, some other artists, you know, also on the poverty line, but doing great work and very happy to have that opportunity. And then, uh, you know, it, it was tough. It was, it was, when it was cold out, it was cold inside. When it was hot outside, it was hot and it was not a particularly comfortable space. And I had a friend who had an apartment in, in Double Bay in Sydney. It was a very nice part of the world. And they had a second bedroom and I would sometimes come and stay there uh, just to have a nice bed for a change. Cause I, <laughs> I designed this series of kids beds 
for a company and uh they would send me to uh to uh, it was my contract i would get two units of the furniture that i designed and i'd sell one or gave it away or at auction and i'm trying to make some money but i kept one as a demo of this little kid bed i'm a big guy i'm, I'm you know uh 190 something centimeters so i'm a tall guy weigh about 130 kilos it's a big unit so I didn't fit on the kids' bed, but I would take this mattress that was on this kids' bed as part of this demo in my studio and throw it on the floor. And then I would sleep on that and spill out of this kid's single mattress. And so occasionally I would just come and stay with my friend and he bought this new apartment and I'd stay there. And it was so nice to have a proper bed, a proper bathroom and all the things that I didn't have in my studio. But I would walk from there to catch the bus and uh, to get uh, uh, all walk up the hill to to catch the train to, to get back to my studio when I did that. And I would walk through Double Bay. And for those who don't know, Double Bay is a very rich, beautiful suburb of Sydney, right by Sydney Harbour, obviously, and uh, very expensive. You know, I'm not going to say the Beverly Hills of Australia, but it's something like that. Anyway, I would be there wearing whatever warm clothes in the winter that my mum gave me or you know, whatever. And it was, it was tough. And I'd go past these beautiful shops and see all these beautiful, expensive coats and clothes and whatever. And I wouldn't say envy was the right word, but it was a sense of longing, you know, wish I could have some of that stuff. And I remember it was the winter after the book came out and it was going really well. And I just walked past as I always did. I still didn't have a car. And I remember looking in the window of this store with all these beautiful coats and, and things and realizing that I could buy whatever I wanted. I had enough money to buy anything in that store. And the first time and I know it sounds like a small getting tears in my eyes, that that part of my life, that struggle was over. And it was a, just knowing that I could buy a coat, uh, a winter coat. That was it. Just knowing that I could afford any winter coat in that store. And I didn't even go in and buy one. Uh, it wasn't about having the thing. It was just knowing that I could when for so long I knew that I couldn't. And that was a, a big moment to have a little bit of financial security after living, you know, so precariously for so long. And that was a lovely moment. Now, in terms of, in terms of making it in the sense of having any kind of cultural impact, it's stories like yours, you know, from people that have said, oh, my, my mom or my girlfriend or my nan or my, my mate or my dad gave me this sometimes as a gift, sometimes to start a conversation, sometimes to finish a conversation. That's, that's really humbling. And, and I say that as someone who's inherently a private person doesn't do, a lot of media so it's not like you're going to see me at a at an opening of a store or a movie i'm not going to be there um and that uh you know to to have it sort of my work sort of gradually make its way around the world means a great deal to me now in terms of the mindset to get that level of success it's pretty simple um just don't quit um it's a paratrooper thing you know die first quit later is the ethos uh, which is a little bit hardcore for a fun little book make people laugh and cry but if you take that mindset you're just not going to take no for an answer you keep working on it keep getting better keep taking it out but here's the big tip the big tip is when someone in a market says no to me i just go to a bigger market and try again i just step over them and because there are a lot of people in the world that are going to be gatekeepers whether they should be or they shouldn't be they're going to be the the, the, the green light or the red light guy they're going to say yes Move it forward or no, it stops with me. They don't have that right to do that to you. You know, you're the one that gives them the power to do that. So when someone says no, it's not no, it just means not here. 
So I would just go to a bigger market and bigger market and bigger market. And that's how I ended up in the US is that you have the biggest English language market in the world. And then you go, okay, how do I take this to other territories and other languages? So I remember I was already the highest selling Australian author at that time. And I'd go to Frankfurt Book Fair, which is the biggest book fair in the world. And there are a number of big ones, you know, um, you know, London's pretty big. Uh, the American one's pretty big at the Javits Center in New York. Um, there's, a, you know, Bologna for kids' books. There's a bunch of big books, but the biggest one by far is the Frank Frankfurt Book Fair in Germany. And I remember going there and just taking, I would take a copy of the book, a card for a literary agent, and they had their own booth set up in one of the massive pavilions, and a photocopy of the New York Times bestseller list with my books on it. And I would just go and cold call and pitch my book to these, you know, go and see what, see what books they had on their stands. And even if they didn't speak the language, we work it out and try and sell it into other countries and working with my agents. I never sat back. I was going to be a passenger. I was always going to try and drive the bus, so to speak. And that paid off because every time you get into a new territory, you get paid again, you get new opportunities. Um, and that's, it's just, it's grind, but I think the difference between a creative professional now than from back in the 70s and the 60s and the 50s is that we're not precious little lambs. You know, we don't expect your agent to just solve all your problems for you and to make it happen. They work for you. You have to go out there and make it happen. So that paratrooper mindset of just not quitting and continue looking for ways to move, move forward to your objective, in this case being publishing success, that was huge. But the big thing is, as I said, when someone tries to stop you, just step over them and go bigger. And that has paid off for me. And that's how, um, you know, I may not sell as many books in Australia as some Australian authors, but when you add all those countries together, I, I sell a lot more books than any of them. And that's that's the reason. Um, just step over them. I think um, as humans, whether it's selling books or getting caught up in the day-to-day grind or whatever, we get tunnel vision and we forget that it is a big wide world out there um mm. and a lot of people in my life are guilty of this i am as well but you you're exactly right i mean a lot of people ask me why do you keep doing your podcast for like it's i said I do it because i fucking want it like i do because it makes me feel good and they're like you're never going to make it and i'm like who, who are you you're just some idiot driving a dump truck what do you know you know doesn't matter what i do like and so i'm going to keep going with it and even if nothing eventuates, I get to chat with people that I genuinely want to hear their stories. That's why I do this. I mean, one day I'd like to. I love that. Well, that, and that that's how you do it. That's how you get there is you, your passion. The love keeps it going. Cause if it's just a money thing or a fame thing, you'll never get there because there'll never be enough of it. And it won't last. But if well, it's, yeah. it's a joy thing, then you're already there. Yeah. Well, if I am able to monetize it one day, awesome. But if not, that's all right too, because I'm still coming out a winner. Um, so there you know, you love hearing that story about the positivity and you and the way you're referring to referencing back to your paratrooper days to keep moving forward. Um, so whilst you were out in the world selling the Blue Day book and whatever else you've published to the international market, you then go on to be a six time New York Times bestseller, and then ultimately, you know, to win it one to do it once, but six times. What was it like, sort of, being an Australian bestseller to a New York Times? Was it like the market on steroids, or what was the pro? It's a different. How, it's, how's that? it's a different. Yeah, it's a different league. Um, but I was actually a New York Times bestseller before I was a bestseller at home. Oh, really? 
Yeah, the book came out here uh, a little cool. earlier. It was it was came out in in ninety nine, and then um, the end of ninety nine, and then it took off. And I was on the New York Times bestseller list the following September, hit number seven, and then it just kept going up from there. But it just it was funny how it happened. This is the chance because these bookstores are so big now. The book market's changed here. You know, Borders Books is gone, and they own several other book chains. Even Barnes and Noble, which is the biggest book chain here, is much smaller than it used to be. Uh, Amazon is dominant. When I was first in publishing, Amazon just came into existence and it was dinky. It was not a big thing. In fact, we would use Amazon as a litmus test for media. So if you went off and did an interview to promote a book, you would watch the sales ranking of your book on Amazon and see if it bumped up. And if it bumped up, you knew the media was working. Uh, that's what we used it for. We didn't think of it as a, it, it, it wasn't a big volume. Now it's the majority of books are bought on, on Amazon. And, uh, you know, back home, of course, we have Booktopia, uh, but which is the dominant player there in online sales and bookstores are still doing pretty well, which is wonderful. So it's funny how the market changes and, and, and different things, but it was, uh, so hit the, hit the New York Times bestseller list over here. The way that it works is these bookstores are so big that they're not managed by, they are managed by people, but they're managed by computers. And so they have these algorithms built into the computers. So when you buy a book and you take it to the checkout and you go to the cash register and you pay for your book, the barcode gets scanned in and the computer is measuring how quickly that book sold from when it was put on the shelf. And if, if, and normally, even if you've got a, a bestseller, it's still, unless it's a mega seller, in my case, it wasn't, but you know, you just, they, the standard order for an unknown author is, is two volumes per store. So you got two little book spines in an, in a, you know, a hectare of books, a needle, a needle in a haystack made of needles. So it's, unless someone physically gets behind it, you just disappear, but the computer measures how quickly that book was sold and it's got been restocked. They reorder it and back it goes. And after it does that a couple of times, a little flag pops up. The algorithm puts a flag up to the head of that department and says, Hey, this book is performing better than most of the books. And that's what happened. It, the blue day book was just tricking along was selling out. And then all of a sudden it, uh, the flag went off and this woman, um, Linda Jones, and she worked for Borders, which was a mega book chain that's now extinct, sadly. Not because it wasn't a good bookstore, but because the CEO was a moron. Uh, but she goes over and she has a look at it. She falls in love with it. And she has a department that takes care of all the front of house stuff at the, at the cash register. So you go up to check out your book. She, has, she owned all those stands there. And she called the publisher and she said, I love this. I want to order something enormous. I want to say something like 200,000 copies, like something ridiculous. And that's the scale you get in a country that has, you know, 13 times that population back home, you know? So she made this massive order and that just changed my life. I went from it. I was already in the New York times, but that just went kaboom. And now you couldn't go to a cash register in any border's bookstore in America without seeing my book. And then, and then Barnes and Noble, the rivals saw that and they loved it. And they called up and they said, we're going to build you a spinner. That's a wire rack. And the dimensions built just for my book. So we could put the books in front of their cash registers as well. So I got flown out to, and it was funny because I was racing dirt bikes at the time. And I had some massive accidents. I was doing, speaking of out your way, I was doing the uh, Yellow Mountain Rally. It was a two-day event, I think out to Tottenham and back. 
and uh, on my uh, on my KTM uh, 660, and I threw it away. I busted my shoulder and my knees. Anyway, I ended up with getting knee surgery and double knee surgery and shoulder surgery at the time. But I had to get back. I had to fly out to America, only been out of surgery for less than a week, in order to go to Palm Beach in Florida for their annual convention to launch these spinners for my books. So I had a, had a book that people liked. The computer put me in front of somebody, but that person, her name was Linda Jones, she suddenly made the big bet. And then her move prompted her rivals to make a big bet. And all of a sudden you're everywhere. And so that was the overnight success moment, which was about, I guess it was about 12 to, to 14 months after launch in America. And then the Australian version came out a little bit before then. And it took off about six months later. Um, and that was it. And suddenly you had a lot of opportunity and it was very exciting, but it's just, you know, I, a lot of luck involved in that. But I will say that even before it was a hit over that next 14 months, I had already written the next two books. So I bet on myself that I would get that opportunity. So when the opportunity came, I was ready. Always creating. I, you hear, I listen to a lot of podcasts about like people inside the industry um, and like your Kevin Smith, he was an indie filmmaker and he's gone on to yeah. wonderful things. Mark Bernardin, he's his host on the podcast, Fat Man Beyond. He's, you know, he's a TV writer and magazine and he writes like comics and stuff. And he said the same thing, you know, as a writer, he said, you know, you, we have to, we don't get paid weekly. We get paid for one project and the next and the next. So you've always got to be creating. Um, so even if you, you know, you don't see what's going on or if you do eventually, have your big break as you said then you might go okay hang on i've got these two or three other ideas you know and the studio might go exactly. or the the publisher might go oh hang on what, he's got more content Let, let's have a look at this and so if you're always creating never destroying the world will infinitely be a better place now i i know this might be a bit of a tangent i speak about your television and movie stuff very shortly but we're just whilst we're talking about accolades and stuff um You've also been recognized for not only your literary works and your conservation works as well, which I want to talk to you about as well. But in 2014, you were you received an, an Order of Australia Medal. So for those of you who may not be aware, it's one of the highest accomplishments an Australian can receive. And I just wanted to ask you, what was it like to be honored in one of the highest regards that this country can bestow? What was that like to be recognized? Uh, oh, it was... It was uh... It was a really big thing for me. It was very humbling. And it just, uh, it was strange. It took a little while to sink in, to be perfectly honest. Um, it comes out of nowhere. No one tells you that you're being considered for it. It's a secret. And then all of a sudden, you get a, you get a, an email asking you to be part of a meeting. And they just sort of said, basically, you know, you, we've been recommended for this medal. And uh, would you be prepared to accept it? Because some people, you know, political or religious reasons may not want to um and for me i i definitely i definitely did want to but the reason for it is that it meant so much to my parents um it means some a great deal to me but it meant enormous amount to them because i took an unconventional career i struggled for many many years and to to there is no greater pleasure in terms of acknowledgement or success than to achieve success in front of your family and friends so whatever you, awards you get overseas or whatever, that's all great. Everyone's happy for you. But to do it at home, it just meant so much to them. And uh, look, they supported me for a long time while I was struggling. You know, as I said, I mentioned my mum would send me blankets and jumpers every winter and 
and uh, um, some money as well. Um, so it really meant a great deal. The fact that it was anonymous and they, they go and they secret process and they go around and they speak to all these people that you've worked with or done projects with, you have no idea. And they've gone behind your back and, and all these people have said, you know, that, that, that he is worthy of this or whatever that, that felt amazing. Cause I had no idea, you know, I was just happy to do it. So that was a beautiful thing. And, and, and the two great passions of my professional life, you know, uh, literature and, uh, and wildlife conservation, I was, I was deeply on it is, is, the, is the long, but short answer. It, it was a lot of feelings, but it was, it was pretty special. The funny thing was I was in the, I was in the U S when I received the award I was getting married a few months later and um, my wife, as I mentioned, is, is, is American. And, um, and so I wasn't able to come home to Australia to receive it in Canberra. And one of my favorite politicians, uh, former Labor leader, Labor leader, Kim Beasley was out here as the ambassador. He was probably the most beloved and respected Australian ambassador to the U S we've ever had. I mean, he's such a smart guy. He's obviously, he's got an incredible wealth of knowledge as an academic. He's a historian. He's a he's a really nice politician. He shared a lot of my values. You know, he's a he's kind of a, a bit of a left leaning centrist like myself. But of course, his ties to the military as defense minister, and he he's, he knows he has to invest in defense and the men and women who keep our country safe and keep our our neighbors safe. So we have that connection on two different paths uh, that sort of transcend politics. And uh, he came to Los Angeles because the, the, the ambassador, the embassy is in Washington. There's just a consulate in Los Angeles. And we went to, uh, we didn't want to be a big public thing. We just went to the consulate house and he presented there in front of my then fiance, now my wife and the mother of our children. And it was just, we had a nice dinner. It was just a really, you know, just a chance to meet him, to be honest. I met him before in the military, but as a soldier, he, we didn't have a conversation. So to spend that time with Kim Beasley and his and his wife was was really a that was kind of a medal in itself to be honest. That's awesome, that, uh, and well des- well des- deserved, obviously. Oh, like thanks, and congratulations on that. Um, so from there, I might transition into the next question that I wanted to ask you. So you know you you've had success. You were the you know killing it as an author. We'll say after struggling for a long time. Uh, but a lot before you, that you received your OAM, had you then transitioned into going to the United States and becoming like a television host and a content expert on, on some of their networks? Or how did that, how did you go from Sydney struggling in a, in a studio to flying overseas and presenting on different networks such as CBS, NBC and, and, the, and stuff like that? So uh, it's kind of interesting. So I was over here um kind of a sad story so i was living i wasn't living in sydney i i, I got out of sydney i uh, it's a great city so is melbourne but i'm not a city person and uh i'm a sort of a, a tasmanian mountain man by heart so i went back to tassie and i was loving it there i was there for about 10 years and um on my farm with my dogs and then i would have to travel you know once twice a year i'd get on a plane and go to various countries to do work and to promote books and to into into pitch books and all the rest of it and I had three dogs. I had three great Danes. And uh, just with that was my family, just myself and my dogs. And then I did a very stupid thing. I didn't lock the gate properly when I went into town. I used to go into town at least once a week to have breakfast. Uh, I'd say breakfast. It would be the Wednesday. Uh, I used to get the New York Times flown in and for the Sunday edition. It would arrive on a Wednesday in Tasmania. I'd pick it up from the post office and then I'd eat 
what I would call breakfast, but it would be breakfast food, but you know, 11 o'clock when the, when the, when the paper arrived. I looked forward to it every week and I didn't latch the gate properly. And when I got home, my dogs got out and to my horror had attacked my neighbor's sheep and uh, killed about, I don't know, six, eight sheep, wounded a few others. And uh, that was it. My dogs were condemned as dangerous and they were going to be destroyed and they were destroyed and I put down and I felt incredible guilt and remorse for the carelessness of not keeping them safe. And I buried my dogs and I had a, uh, just a bit of a personal crisis. I felt depressed. I uh, yeah, got some treatment for depression, spent a bit of time with my family in Queensland. And I had this longstanding invitation from the Walt Disney Company to come and consult because of my background. You know, I had the kind of weird background that was interesting to them, you know, elite military, I'd gone through the Russian space program. I'd done a ton of work with wildlife conservation. Yeah. I was a very successful creative person, all the rest of it. And they kept wanting me to come over there and I wasn't prepared to leave because I didn't want to leave my dogs. And suddenly my dogs are dead. I don't feel like working on my books for a while. I'm feeling a bit miserable. So I thought, well, why not? You know, I'll try and change my energy, go somewhere different, you know, try to recharge my life. And I went over there and I consulted with Walt Disney Imagineering. That's the creative think tank that builds all the roller coasters and the hotels and the I ended up accepting two more invitations to work with them. So I ended up doing three periods of time as their uh, executive creative consultant in residence as part of their visiting artist program. And uh, look, it was a good thing I did because on my third and final time uh, in that position, I literally ran into my future wife while getting coffee and she was an architect and uh, we connected and here we are, you know, many years later. And so I had then had a project I wanted to do in Madagascar because I wanted to be close to her. I, I changed it to another project in Costa Rica. I worked on that did a book there from the cloud forest. And then I'd sort of commute back and forth. And it was pretty, I mean, you know, it's a schlep, but it was like 12 hours door to door. Um, when you sort of drive down from the mountains, the rainforest, get to San Jose, take a plane to Los Angeles and all the rest of it. So I was doing that for a while. And then um, this is how weird Hollywood is. Um, I hadn't even in my wildest dreams thought about uh, being on television, but uh, there's a show, it's not in the air anymore, called Chelsea Lately. It was a very successful late night talk show with a female comedian. Her name's Chelsea Handler. She's very successful, very popular. And she had this late night talk show and she was dating this hunky Canadian wildlife expert and they broke up and then she hated him and she kicked him off the show. They needed someone to present animals on these late night shows every now and then. And she had a, a, a what they call a booker, you know, a talent manager called uh, Siobhan Shonda. And she said, let's get someone, let's get someone who's got more credibility in this space uh, and, uh, you know, has more experience, more knowledgeable, and also someone that Chelsea doesn't want to have sex with. Um, and it was like, <laughs> oh, thanks, <laughs> I guess. What a reverse compliment. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So they... And again, it's Hollywood, right? So it's weird. Betty White. So the great Betty White, rest in peace. And she said, let me call LA Zoo and see who they know. They call LA Zoo, again, through my conservation work. I knew Betty White through that. And I knew LA Zoo through conservation work. Mike D, a friend of mine, he's passed away. He was there. And he said, you got to get BTG. He's in town. You should get him, you know? And, um, and so they called me up out of nowhere, said, Betty White says we should bring you in. So I get over to NBC 
and I just take a lizard. I borrow someone's chameleon. I go over there. I give a, a short lecture on the chameleon, try to make it entertaining. And they said, that's it. And so I ended up from absolute nowhere, but just, you know, why not? I'll have a go at it. I end up uh, on the show and I did that for about two years. Um, you know, it wasn't every week. It was like every few months and uh, take animals on the show. And then opportunities started coming. And at the same time, as much as I was madly head over heels in love, still am, I, I, I did not like LA and I, I kind of still don't. You know, it's just, it's just not my kind of place. I mean, I'm from Tasmania where beautiful, clear skies, clean rain, clear water, you know, strange animals, wonderful plants, relaxed people. I just love it. Going from that, you know, I remember in my place at, on the coast up there near Fresene, I might get seven people on my beach all year and five of them would be penguins to now the entire population of Australia in one city. I, I struggled to, to deal with that. So I just, I was very miserable. I mean, my wife was working on projects all around the world. She'd be gone for a week here or two weeks there. I was fine when she was here, but when she's gone, I just like, God, what am I doing here? I hate this so much. So I said, what can I do here that I can't do anywhere else that I've always wanted to do? And one of those things was bears. I've always been fascinated with bears. I've never lived in a bear uh, country with bears before. So I just started researching bears and then I said, well, I'm going to go and study them in the field. So whenever my wife would go away for a week or two, I would hop on the plane to Alaska. I go to this remote Island that no one really went to and, and live with the Tlingit people, the native Tlingit people and study these giant Alaskan coastal brown bears. And I did that for years. And so because of my appearances on this late night television show, and it wasn't just her show, it was also the late, late show, which is another popular late night show. Ferguson and that's some information I started getting evidence of this new subspecies of uh, polar bears and Alaskan coastal brown bears and possibly other ancient bears like the giant American short-faced bear from the last ice age isolated on this island together and people took an interest and ended up making that documentary um, Fear Island Fortress of the Bears and because of the late night show appearances, I got that opportunity to do bigger and better things. And then I've been leveraging that ever since. And then of course you get to the stage where, you know, you write a book that's suitable for a movie and Penguin Bloom certainly was, and you're able to leverage that too. So I've learned, it's been a, you know, when you're not learning, you're dying. So you learn so much just because I'm a Hollywood doesn't mean I know how Hollywood works. I had to study it and it took a while, but I'll tell you a fun thing. Yes. I had the agent's, you know, and the fancy cars, whatever, doing the work. But the reason, the way I got Penguin Bloom made from a book into a movie, because of my zoo work, because of my conservation work back in Australia. So the producer who worked with Naomi Watts as a closest friend, um, her name is Emma Cooper. Her father, Guy Cooper, was the CEO of Taronga Zoo for, you know, 10, 20 years. And we were good friends. So when I couldn't get any headway in Hollywood with the book, I called Emma and I said, look, I'll be honest with you. I really like Naomi Watts to play the lead in this movie. There is interest in it, but I really want to be Naomi Watts. And so does the family, Sam and Cameron Bloom. They want to be Naomi Watts. Could you please take it to her? And then of course, the wonderful thing was that uh, she didn't just want to play Sam Bloom. She wanted to help produce the movie. And that just instantly went from being a small thing to a big thing, just like that. It became a big project and we had plenty of interest and Reese with a spoon wanted to make it and blah, blah, blah. The point being, it doesn't matter how far you go, 
often the key to your success is in your past. So you've got to tread carefully and you know, build bridges and respect the people that you work with. If it hadn't been for my great relationship for all these decades of working with wildlife and Taronga Zoo, I wouldn't have made a movie. You just answered another two or three more questions, but before I ask you more about um, the movie process, <laughs> uh, well, sorry, I don't want to say, I don't want to uh, pronounce it incorrectly, but the, was it the Clinkit people? Clinkit, yeah. So it's spelled T-L-I-N-G-I-T, but it's actually, you, you actually say it, the actual letter, the way they say it is a cross between a T and a K. And because if you're not raised that way, it's hard to do. You just go with a K sound, Clinkit. Clinkit, okay. So you were actually like, as it says, like on the thing you sent me, you were adopted by these Clinkit people. Um, Tell us about the process of, you know, being adopted with the Native Americans. And is that the correct term? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Alaska Native. Um, How was it uh, being involved in, and being accepted and um yeah what, what was it like to be part of their part of their culture essentially because that's that's really cool i thought I, look it's an it's a tremendous honor and i just loved uh love getting to know them and learn about them and and uh and to spend time with them and to become part of that family is is to me if anything an honor greater than my you know uh you know, my order of Australia medal, it's, it's, it's bigger than that, to be honest, because it's such a big thing to connect with a culture that ancient. Um, so the Klingit people in Southeast Alaska, they're a very much a warrior people. They, even to this day, it's kind of considered unusual if, if you don't serve in the military at some point in your life. Um, invariably, your family, someone will be in the Marine, someone will be in the Army, the Air Force, God forbid, the Navy, uh, the Coast Guard, you know, it's, they have this proud, it's actually not usually the Navy. They don't like the Navy for because of the US bombarding um, uh, Angoon, their village, a long time ago. I'll tell that story at a time. But the point is, I didn't know anybody. I, I found this remote island where there's very little study on the bears. There. I knew the bears were huge. I knew the stories about the bears and the cultural history. I found it fascinating. I knew nothing about the people. I knew nothing about the island. I knew nothing about the bears until I started studying. And then I said, fine, I got to go there. I took a plane, uh, Seattle, a plane to Juneau, seaplane from Juneau to Angoon. And no one spoke to me for the entire first season that I was studying bears. I mean, I, I you know, paid money for fishermen to take me around on the boat and uh, I take my photos and, and document these bears and all the rest of it. But no one would talk to me. And then the next year, I'm back, I'm studying the bears. Uh, word got out that I was a, former paratrooper and all of a sudden my standing went from zero to something they're like okay we respect him now and that's when i started making connections and i just did that year after year after year after year and i listened to the stories and i attended the formal gatherings and i asked questions of the headmen and i was always respectful obviously the environment um i used to carry a, a fairly powerful handgun early on for protection and then i thought who am i kidding you know, by the time I get this gun out and I drop my binoculars and my camera and my notebook, I'm probably just going to shoot myself in the nuts and, uh, and nothing, you know, and you can't stop these things. These are huge. I mean, we're talking, you know, we're talking thousand kilo bears, you know, at their biggest, you know, mostly in the 600 kilo range. I mean, these are monsters. Uh, people think about bears in, in the West, Western United States talk about grizzly bears and grizzly bears are big, 
But by definition, a grizzly bear, and they share the same genetics, but the grizzly bear is an interior bear. And the Alaskan coastal brown bears are, you know, two, three times as big. It's just another level. Um, the largest carnivores in the world. So I stopped doing that and uh, I took, uh, was very lucky to have a Klingit guide, a former US, uh, he was also in the Airborne. He was uh, Fort Bragg, he did the sniper course. So now I've got a bear guard and guide in one and Alvin Johnson. And so we would just spend weeks and weeks at a time, you know, out in the field studying these bears and uh, testing the, the scat and, you know, the poop and seeing what they're eating and documenting where they are and got to know the island incredibly well. Went to some places that people haven't been to for four or 500 years, you know, generations since the last person went there. It was an incredible experience. And these bears are enormous, uh, enormous, and they're very intelligent they have their own way of doing things and you get to learn a lot about their behavior by watching them, but you never really know what's going to happen until it happens. I remember that, you know, I'd say this lightheartedly, but I remember the first time I'm face to face with a giant Kutznawu brown bear. This thing's huge. You know, as I said, it's, it's over 500 kilos of bear. It's a lot of don't argue. And I remember I used to joke and say, you know, I actually heard my penis gasp. You know, the thing is so mad. first injection that started growing inside of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, this, and there's no, it's not a zoo. You know, there's no moat, there's no bars, there's no cage. And uh, the only thing keeping me alive is, is, is him not caring that I exist. These are not bears that people go and see all the time. So these are bears that uh, get left alone. And as a result, uh, they're often a little bit timid. They're like, oh, what are you doing? And so they're either getting away from you or they're coming to have a look at you in a way that you don't want. So I spent years doing this and I built up this relationship with the Klinger community and specifically with the Daishitan clan, which is the, the, the Raven House uh, Beaver clan from Basket Bay and uh, became very close to them. And yeah, I eventually uh, made the documentary, which they consulted on and were a big part of. And um they trusted me and welcomed me to the family and, and gave me a name, which was an incredible honor. And, um, and uh, because their names are not, it's not like dances with wolves, you know, where people make up names because they saw you doing something and therefore, you know, you know, you're, you're a guy with one shoe or whatever it is in the movies, some sort of Hollywood trope. All Klingit names must exist. They're all people that have existed. Oh, that's my daughter, Genevieve. Um, hey. Yeah. So, she just come home from playgroup. <laughs> you come say hello to Mitch. Hello. Okay. I've got a head okay. that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the uh, um, so all Klingit names must exist. And each Klingit name is a story fragment from history. So we're talking names that go back over 10,000 years. And they're story fragments from their history. So my name, Yakayek, means uh, raven by the pond. So it connects me to the Raven Moiti, which is really important. And it actually connects me to a, a certain piece of land that belongs to Daishitan. In English, it was given the name Heidelberg Lake, but that's not what it's called. You know, it's, it's got its own name. So that's what's pretty amazing is, is the, to, to be shared that, that living history. So no new names are created. They're just passed on. And when someone dies, the, uh, the loved one, usually a young, preferably uh, a young woman, ideally with child, walks around the grave of, of the deceased 
and so and, and says, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And they're calling the name back from the afterlife. And then that name is passed on with all the strength and the power of that person is passed on to uh, another, another child. And um, so to have a name meant a great deal to me. Now, without getting too technical, the way the culture works, the, um, <laughs> she's behind me, without getting too technical, <laughs> one, just give me one second. <laughs> He's just uh, going after his daughter. This is cool. Looks like she's playing a bit of hide and seek. It's pretty cute, actually. Okay. She's my pride and joy. She just want to come and play. Um, I'm going to have to wrap this up soon and head downstairs. But anyway, so, oh, no, she's miserable. Hang on, I can't hear you, mate. Uh, sorry. We can wrap it up and do a part two later on if you want. Uh, I understand. That's right. I'll, so, um, what was I talking about? So, I was saying was Names that, so, passed uh, on. Names being passed on. <clears throat> so, in Klinger culture, the way it works is that you have two moieties. You have raven and you have eagle. And sometimes eagle is referred to as wolf. And then with each of those two moieties, you have the different tribes, the different houses. And it's you, you marry the other moieties. It's a whole complex thing. But in simple terms, someone from the raven clan, uh, from the ravens, must marry an eagle. And it could be, so in my case, it's beaver. You might marry someone that's eagle bear or eagle shark or eagle whatever. And so... It's, it's this way that it's always worked. The point being is that it was a formality once I was adopted that at some point someone would adopt my wife and children and they would have to be in the eagle side of things. And that's what happened. That's what happened. Uh, so my, my wife and children were adopted by the eagle and the bears, the brown bears. And so now we all have names and rights and it's, I, it's, it's, I'm enormously proud of it. I'm so proud to be trusted with being a part of this, you know, living culture that goes back, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of years. And whenever I'm out in on the island in Kutsunu studying the bears, I come across these relics. You know, I come across these this evidence of this culture that goes back so far. I've come past, uh, you know, fish traps. You know, fish traps that are over a thousand years old. Uh, this whole area that you only will see on on the spring tide. Uh, you won't see it any other time. And I've taken you know, video of it and, and photos and I found these old hunting trails. Uh, it's just incredible to be a part of that culture, to be welcomed in. And as an, a, you know, a formally adopted member, I take my responsibilities of the memory as a member of the tribe, member of the family seriously. And uh, I have projects that I want to go back there and do with them as well. But you know, the real reason I started going there was just because I couldn't stand being in Los Angeles. Isn't it funny how things can come full circle? And like I was prepared to do anywhere else. Is it funny yeah, how things just, come full circle? That's cool, man. It's just like all I started was to get out of LA and do something I couldn't do anywhere else. I wanted to find something positive to feel good about being in America. I ended up finding a great passion. I, Alaska, part of the reason I love it is because Alaska is to America what Tasmania is to Australia. You know, it's this unspoiled, pristine colder climate new vegetation new animals different people and so it felt like my tasmania over here and important part. absolutely love it i absolutely love it but that's well, it's funny how it began that's that's where it took me if you got fair enough that's an awesome story if you got to wrap up soon you got time another three or four questions yeah absolutely Let, let's knock them out okay number one um you're a member of the sag afra and the wga which we spoke about briefly before is currently going through a a strike at the moment um basically correct me if i'm wrong 
all that the members are trying to do is just get a bit of, of fair pay for the for the writers guild because you know Fran Drescher come out and said you know if you don't earn twenty six thousand dollars you don't get your insurance entitlements, um, and basically the way that uh, streamers are like your Netflix and stuff like that, you know they don't they don't pay retainers now they get the writers get one sum and that's it for the series. Um, yeah, look, it varies, but. And yeah, I'm in the Actors Guild. I'm also in the Writers Guild. I identify obviously as a writer. I mean, one look at this head uh, tells you all you need to know. But the reason I'm in the Actors Guild is when I put out Adventure Beast, which is a semi-autobiographical animated series about wildlife and my wildlife work, which is on Netflix worldwide. You can watch it in Australia or anywhere you want. Same with Penguin Bloom on Netflix worldwide. When I did that, um, I voiced my own character. So I voiced myself. And in order to do the voice, I had to become a member of the Actors Guild. So yes, I'm proud to be a member of SAG, but in reality, I, I don't identify as an actor, I identify as a writer. So I happen to have uh, be in both camps on this. In essence, it's this. Some decades, a decade and change ago, when streaming was in its infancy, so all the stuff we take for granted today, Netflix, Amazon Prime, uh, Hulu, Paramount Plus, there's a, you know, there's a bunch of them. I'm sure there's more back in Australia as well. These didn't exist until the last sort of 15, 20 years. And, uh, you know, not cable TV, I'm talking about streamers. And when it was the deal, the last deal was struck, I want to say 10, 15 years ago, it was still an infant industry. And the deal for the pay for this marginal industry that would come from these shows was, was modest. And it was very different because before that, when you're on network television or cable, you get paid rightfully every time they show your movie or they show your TV show because they're making money off the ads. They're making money off the subscriptions. So let's just say you're on network television and you get paid, I mean, pick a number. Let's just say it's it's $20,000 to write something and then it would stream, it would be on television. The, the television network makes millions or hundreds of thousands at least off of their ad revenue for showing that show. That's how the model works. It's so successful. They say, let's put it on four months later, six months later, eight months later. And again, the same amount of ads, they make that same amount of money every time. And traditionally, you, you get paid, what's called a residual. So when your show goes on again and they're making more money off it, you get a little slice of that money. And that's how you support yourself because it's very hard to get a project up. You spend a lot of time pitching projects that don't get up. It's a tough business. That's what kept it alive. It allowed writers and actors to, have, to aspire to have a middle-class income. You put their kids through school. Get healthcare, which over here is ridiculously expensive. It's quite common to spend uh, anywhere from twenty to forty thousand dollars a year just to have medical insurance. So yeah. Yeah. it's yeah, no, no free healthcare. That's how that works. It's very different to back home. We have a better system in Australia. It's ridiculous here. Now, if you qualify with a certain number of points based on your projects, either for the Actors Guild or for the Writers Guild. You get to buy their insurance, which is much cheaper, much cheaper. It's it's a it's a hundred bucks a month or give or take, you know. So it costs a couple thousand dollars a year instead of tens of thousands. So it's very important for writers and actors to have access to that healthcare. Um, basically, what happened is the industry changed. Network TV is losing market share. Cable TV is losing market share, and now uh, an enormous volume of of screens are streamers. People are watching streamers. You want to watch movie after movie after movie. You've got Disney Plus, you've got Amazon, you've got Netflix, you've got Apple TV. That's what people are going to. But we're still paying 
getting paid as if they were a small part of the industry as opposed to being giants. And we're not getting the real residuals, getting this tiny percentage. So people are losing avenues to make a living and they just need a pay raise. They just need to get a fairer share of this giant chunk of money. That's all it is. It just, when we first did the deal, they were tiny. Now they're massive, but they're still paying tiny. They need to pay a fair amount to both the actors and the writers that make these shows possible. Now, there are some other conditions as well that people are asking for. They're asking for minimum number of days and the kind of stuff that unions always ask for. But really what it comes down to is, is, is two basic issues. The first I've just described, they're giants now. They need to start paying properly. And the second thing is, with artificial intelligence, we need to make sure that it's used fairly and not used to take away credit or people's likenesses without their permission. So that's something that's on the table as well. And the way it could be abused, and if you look at AI right now and the stuff that comes out, I mean, it can't write for shit. I mean, the stuff that comes out written by artificial intelligence is, is worthless. It's the kind of like brochure copy for a corporation. It's a good starting point. It's great for generating ideas. It's wonderful for graphics. It look, it's a very exciting tool and people should use it uh, for any creative field that's relevant. Absolutely. Its primary function is really to, to write code for computers. That's what it's really built to do. But in time, it will do a lot more and do it very, very well. That's fine, yeah. but don't use it to mimic someone's stuff and steal from them. So in the case of a writer, what you don't want is some executive with no talent, putting in some prompts, coming up with a garbage script, and then giving it to a real writer and saying, okay, make this into a movie, but I get the credit for having come up with it when it was spat out of the computer. Uh, there needs to be rules to make sure that the appropriate person who does the work gets the credit and gets paid. Um, and for actors, it's even more simple. Don't steal someone's likeness and voice, which you can do now, and put a movie star in your movie without paying the movie star, paying the actor. Some of these networks were trying to have a deal where you could turn up as an extra in a movie. They would map you and then use you as background characters and all their movies going forward and never pay you again. Just pay you for that one day where you were there when you got mapped. So they'd scan your face, take your image, pay you, what, a few hundred dollars for one day, and then all of a sudden you're used everywhere and not receiving the entitlements that you should be getting. 100%. Yep. 100%. Now, I'm if you want to create a, a computer graphic person and put him in the background, look, like Lord of the Rings, okay? Uh, the incredible work by Wetterworks over there in New Zealand making those movies, and they created these giant crowd scenes, and they got all the orcs. And, yeah, some of the orcs are real, guys in costumes and makeup. That takes an amazing amount of work to get that right. And then they could map them and make these crowd scenes. They pay them to be in the movies. They, they created computer versions of them to have these giant battle scenes that made cinema that much more engaging. But don't steal off someone. Don't underpay them. If they're gonna, if their likeness is making it possible for you to create a product that makes you money, you owe them a share of that. So those are the, those are the, to my understanding, the fundamental issues. There's some other ones that unions always ask for: minimum days, um, numbers of staff. And yes, I would like them to agree to all of that. But the real two that matter are, let's not let artificial intelligence be abused to steal away credit for the people who actually make the product, who do the acting, who do the writing. And now that the industry is matured and we see what it's actually worth, let's make sure that the money that's being shared with the people who create the content is fair and not based off an inferior model. It's not true anymore. It's not... It's like you talk about a major studio and you talk about a little art house studio. 
one's making a, a movie for 500 grand and the other one's making one for 200 million. It's different pay scales. If you work on that 500 grand movie or a $1 million movie, that's a little art film, a little indie project, little indie studio project. You know you're getting scale, okay? You're going to get X number of dollars a week. You're not going to get rich doing it. You're doing it for the art form and that's fine. You work on Avengers and they spend a quarter of a billion dollars on it. You are not going to get indie money. That's not fair. And that's what this is. Back in the day when it first started, the streamers were little indie films. Now they are the Avengers and they've got to start sharing the wealth. Otherwise, the pipeline is going to dry up. Very well, very well explained. And hopefully uh, a resolution is found soon. So watch this. But anyone who's interested in it, there's more than enough websites following that in great detail. Now, I know your time is short, but I really wanted to ask you this question and one more before we go, if that's all right. Sure. How does one work in conservation and writing and television become a graduate of the Russian space program? How's, how did that come about? That was blown my mind when I read that. <laughs> so it is kind of out there. It's hard to believe. Uh, it makes me so sad now with the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. And uh, I really enjoyed my time in Russia and uh, back in, uh, was it 2004? And just, I look forward to There's so much of Russia. I haven't seen. I always wanted to go to the Urals and, uh, I wanted to, um, you know, go to the Amur River in the east and uh, where the tigers and the leopards are. I'll never get, and I, I just, I just don't know if I'll ever get the chance to go back to Russia in my lifetime because of the craziness right now. I don't know what's going on. But um, look, as a kid, I really wanted to go to the moon. A lot of boys have that uh, fantasy. I had it, and you know, we don't have, still don't really have a space program in Australia. Um, we license, you know, we pay other companies to put our satellites up. We've had, what, a tiny number of, 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 of astronauts uh, actually go up and gone to America or wherever else they've gone. Uh, technicians gone to work for other foreign space programs. And I salute them. So it wasn't something that was a realistic goal for me, but I, I never got rid of that. I really wanted to do it. And then I was lucky enough to have some success selling my books in Russia and um, some doors opened up. And because of my unique background, and I support conservation wherever I go. So if, you know, if I make money from a book in a particular territory, I try to put a percentage of that income back into conservation there. And so far, we've probably donated somewhere between, I think, 9 and $10 million in royalties gone to conservation projects around the world. And in Russia at the time, we were supporting the, um, uh, the Kamchatkan Brown Bear Program. And we did it through Moscow Zoo, and then that went into another fund that went over to Kamchatka in the field. So the combination of having an elite military pedigree, having success in the arts, and having supported Russian wildlife conservation, that they were open to me coming into their private space program, which you sort of pay for play type situation. Now, I was the biggest person by far to ever do in terms of height and weight and width. And I trained my ass off. You know, it's funny because I was in Antarctica when I found out that I was going to go. And I tore my anterior cruciate ligament and a snowdrift twisted, you know, fell into soft snow and twisted and tore my knee. So when I got back off the ship, the icebreaker, I get surgery to fix my knee again. I've had seven of those, uh, seven knee rebuilds. And then I had to spend the next six months trying to get down to uh, the, the goal was 105 kilos. And I couldn't quite make that. I got down about 110, but I was in the gym for three hours a day for six months, eating very limited healthy food. And you know, it was, it's an incredible opportunity, but I, I went over there and I passed all this training and I did all the, 
the testing and the, the medical checks and all the rest of it. And I passed and I was approved for launch, but I never got picked for a launch. And I didn't have the, at that time, I think they wanted 30 million to do it. We try to get a TV show to, to sort of support it, but it just, those numbers were just unreachable. And I was this big unit. I kept breaking records all the way through uh, space, you know, cosmonaut training, which is never good in that kind of business. It's not the thing where you want to break a record for being the biggest or the heaviest or the biggest lung capacity because now you're sucking up all the oxygen inside the space station. Um, and um, it was very funny because they're very tough. Russians are a wonderful cultural history. I was very lucky to be able to go to the new uh, Anton Chekhov Cultural Center and lay a cornerstone there. I'm a huge fan of Chekhov's writing. And, um, you know, just wonderful cultural history, just extraordinary people. You can't just look at them through the, the lens of these tyrants, you know, the Stalins and now the Putins and others like that. It's, they're bigger than that. And they're funny because they're kind of like, it's like, it's like the Terminator, but the soul of the Terminator is an Italian. You know, they're really passionate, expressive people, but they're also really tough. And uh, I just really enjoyed my time there with them and makes me so sad about what's happening right now. Um, anyway, so I'm going through the cosmonaut training program at, at Energia, you know, the Yuri Gagarin Space Training Center outside of Moscow, Oblast. And um, I mean, these are the pioneers of space. They put all the first rockets into space. They were so far ahead of any other country, so far ahead of the Americans. And they had a much better safety record. And, uh, you know, Korolev and his team building these incredible rockets. They put a, people don't know this, they put a platinum wire uh, Jeep on the moon. They put a plaque on the moon. And uh, they put the first satellite Sputnik into space. They just did so many firsts, one after the other. And obviously the first man in space, the first woman in space. They did it all. And they, the Americans, for political reasons, with JFK, they decided they needed to do this. They went after it with a vengeance. But they killed a lot of people, a lot of animals trying to catch up. Uh, it wasn't nearly as sophisticated a program. It was very cowboyish. Um, still in awe of them, but it was a very sloppy program compared to what the Russians were running at the time. And then, you know, the Americans put the first man on the moon. And when Neil Armstrong stood on the surface of the moon, he crushed the dreams of the Soviet Union beneath his heel because politically they couldn't afford to lose face by being second. And what if it went wrong? What if it was a disaster and they double failed? And so this whole area was kind of put on ice, this exclusive enclave, this aerospace enclave. And here I am staying there, training there. I mean, it was... It was like a, it was like you traveled back to a far more heroic age. These giant Soviet sculptures, and you know, I saw where Gagarin's apartment was, and his widow still lives there, by the way. She did when I was there. And there's a big statue of him out in front of her apartment, which must be kind of creepy. Uh, but it was just this incredible experience. And of course, at the time after the Challenger disaster, it was the only way to get to space. Was uh, the no, no shuttles going up? You had to go up in a Soyuz and you would go and train where I was. So I got to meet all these astronauts from Asia and Europe and, and America and obviously Russia. And it was such a privilege for me. It was a thrill, but it was hard. I mean, I, I was too big for a lot of the stuff and uh, I would have to dislocate my left shoulder to get into the all on suit, uh, the extra vehicle activity suit, the EVA suit, big metal chassis inside. And I was just too broad. So I dislocate my shoulder every morning to get in and out of it. And one of the reasons I've had a couple of shoulder surgeries was very painful, much more painful than Mel Gibson made it look in Lethal Weapon 2, I can tell you that. Um, and just, but just such a privilege, you know, to be 
doing that. And I'll tell you, the, the takeaway I got from it was I really felt hopeful for the world because it was kind of this United Nations of best and brightest, all these astronauts and all the support staff. And I just thought, this is what you can do when you bring the best and brightest together from all over the world. You can do anything. You can travel across space and time and do things of this monumental scale. I remember being moved by that and feeling really hopeful when I finished there about what the human race was possible, uh, what was possible for the human race. And uh, yeah, it was an incredible experience. It was tough. A lot of vomiting, a lot of vomiting in helmets. I can tell you that a lot of spinning upside down and, you know, you watch the movie, the right stuff. And it's so lame compared to the real thing. The real thing is pretty brutal. And the men and women do it are, are very special. And I was just privileged to very briefly walk in their shoes. But that was, again, an opportunity that came up because of other things that I uh, put together. And you just got to keep saying yes, you know, and it was expensive and it was painful and it was difficult. And I've never stopped being thankful for a second since that day. I'll tell you a funny story, though. The Russians are so deadpan. They're so droll. And I was trying to film it a little bit. VCR, we didn't have camera phones in those days. It's 2004. And I thought, oh, I'll put it together a video, I might be able to use it for a TV show one day, who knows? And these technicians, a lot of women, big beehive dudes, lab coats, big glasses. Anyway, they're measuring, they get the ultrasound out, they measure every organ in your body because if there's any kind of distortion or deformation or injury under pressure, because remember, you get the you know, fighter pilots get tested to six Gs. So Top Gun Maverick is all bullshit. Obviously, great film, but it's all bullshit. Fighter pilots get tested like six Gs. Astronauts, cosmonauts get tested 12, and you do it inverted upside down. So it's pretty tough going. And I remember this, you're testing all the organs in your eyes, make sure that there's no damage, any kind of micro tears, because anything could just blow up and you die in the centrifuge or whatever other parts of the testing. And so she's measuring all organs in my body with ultrasound and says nothing for like 40 minutes, just nothing. And I'm just trying to get a soundbite, trying to get something that I could put together in this video. And so I said to her in mix of, of sort of English and pigeon Russian saying, okay, how is everything? Is everything okay? Is there any problem? And she looks at me and she just goes, eh, big man, big bowels. And that was it. <laughs> and it, <laughs> it was man, just- big bowels. Big man, big bells. Another time I'm in the, I'm in the world's largest centrifuge and it, and, it, and it malfunctions and I start spinning against the, in this direction, like until I basically black out and they unbolt me and they take the whole, they say, oh, sorry, the machine's broken down. We'll come back tomorrow, test tomorrow. But they pull me out and, they, and it's like you're in this giant, it's like being tied to a bank vault. I mean, this huge machinery you're inside it. It's not like you just sit down in a little chair. It's, it's a whole process. And they pulled me out. I couldn't even crawl in a straight line. I felt like someone hit me in the head with a meat mallet, you know. And, um, you know, and no one asked me if I was okay. They just go, you know, it's, it's fine. We checked the data. <laughs> and that was it. No one had ever asked me in all my training if I was okay. So it was just very funny. Anyway, I, I have great affection for the Russian people. And I'm very sorry that... Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin and his coterie of tyrants is is destroying the country's reputation. When he came in, he was supposed to be the golden boy for a new future. And now he's the monster. And I'm so sad because the Russian people are incredibly intelligent and cultured. They have this heroic history, this profound connection with nature, with the arts, with literature. It's a rich country in so many ways. And 
I am sorry if I don't get the chance to go back there again during my lifetime. There's so many places and people and wildlife that I would like to see. That's a, that's quite a story. And I could speak to you for hours, but I know um, time pending, you've got to go do family stuff. Um, uh, I was just wondering before we close out one, would you like to come back on again sometime and do part two? Cause this <laughs> yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to. Awesome. And also as well, we didn't mention it today. Um, you've, uh, you've also do a podcast as well. It's called Semi Indestructible, and it streams everywhere, and your Spotify's and your and your Apples and stuff. So check that out. I'll put a link up for that too. Um, we'll talk about that next time. And more oh, that'd more. be great. It's a it's it's a fairly new thing. Look, I, it's one of the things I started doing because of the strike, you know. Yeah. And I just I have a couple of projects, TV and film, that are just on hold now. We're just waiting. And uh, look. I'm lucky I had a book to finish, which I've just finished. It'll come out next year. We can maybe talk about it when it comes out next year, but um, I just want to make sure I keep my mind going. And and I, I used to be a guest on a show called the wild times podcast hosted by Forrest Galante. Yep. And they said, do you want to do your own podcast for a little while? So I've been doing it. It's a lot of fun. We talk about adventure and wildlife and, and various aspects of the modern world for the, through the view, uh, through the lens of someone who loves adventure. Um, so yeah, semi indestructible. You can get it anywhere. I guess the people want to stay in touch with me. The easiest way to do it is to uh, follow me on Instagram, which is, as you found out, it's just Tasmanian underscore Grizzly, Tasmanian Grizzly. And um, that's how you find me. But um, as I said, I'm not a celebrity celebrity. I just mind my business and get on with my life. So don't expect any fancy things. Just, uh, but by all means, pop your head in and say good day. Yeah, for sure. And I'll put a link to that. Um, clever name, by the way. I sort of just put two and two together. I'm like, oh yeah, that's cool. And um, <laughs> before we close out, Obviously, you have a plethora of fans for your body's work, your movies. Also, you were some of the most notable noises in Finding Nemo. You were the seagull with the Mai Mai, which I still hear reference to this day. Um, mine, mine. That's right. Um, obviously, your television works, your author, your books. I was going to say your author works. You publish books. Good job, Mitch, you idiot. Um, you know, your conservation work, which is very important. We'll talk about next time, but I just wanted to ask you, before we close out, and obviously you'll never be able to individually talk to every single fan you've got, but if they were to sort of hear some words from you, what would you like to say to those out there that have helped you and been a fan of yours along your journey? Do you think? Well, I think the first thing is to say, thank you for supporting me. You know, every person who supports you matters because no matter how much money that goes into a project or into its marketing, ultimately it all comes down to word of mouth. So if somebody likes it, and tell somebody else who has a similar taste in books or films or TV podcasts. That is what um, makes all the difference. And with me, in my case, when I did the Blue Day book, you know, it was such a different little book, you know, pictures and text, and it was funny and it was different. And the major bookstores didn't want it. And then it was all the little independent bookstores. And I've been to a number of their conventions, both in the States and home and elsewhere. And the little independent bookstores who gave me a shot and then it was successful there. And then the big book chains came and picked it up. Now it's different now. Now I'm, yeah, I'm a big book chain guy and don't, I've never turned my nose up at the little shops. I turn up all the time to, to independent bookshops and I appreciate them enormously because I never forgot that's what got me going. So it's not just a case of not forgetting where you come from. It's understanding how things work. People have to fall in love with what you're doing. They have to give you a piece of their life in order to appreciate your work. That's what I think of all the time. 
when someone takes time out to read one of my books or watch one of my shows or watch Penguin Bloom the movie, whatever it is, you have just given me an hour or two or whatever of your life. So whatever I do has to be worth that time. And I really think about that when I'm writing. I want to make sure I just pack it with as much humor and as much thought and as much entertainment and as much wisdom and as much interesting information as I possibly can for what it is. Because I never forget that someone's giving me their life in exchange to share what I've pulled it out of the best of myself, out of my heart. That's what it is. So I, I think about that and how well that served me. So I would say to you, first of all, thank you for being part of the reason I'm successful by giving me a piece of your life and sharing it with me and, and, and appreciating my work and, and recommending me to your friends. That means a great deal to me. And in terms of those of you that are listening that also want to follow in our footsteps, whether you're going to have a podcast or, or you're going to write books or whatever you're going to do, is that everybody starts off somewhere knowing nothing. And over time, you learn a great deal. And sometimes you forget how much you know. So much of your life, you've been preparing yourself for a task or an adventure or a project, and you didn't even know it. And it's very important to trust yourself that you may not know the technical aspects of what you're doing, but you know enough to give it a go and to give it a go. I remember as, as, as Taika Waititi was saying recently about writing screenplays, he said, even a shit, a shit screenplay is better than no screenplay. And just write it. Just do the thing and then take it as far as you can. And don't give up when you get slapped down. As you heard earlier, we we're talking about it, hundreds of rejections. You know, my eighth book was my first book. You know, hundreds and hundreds of rejections and people telling me it was no good. It was this or it was that. And, and it ended up being very successful. You just don't know. You just don't know. And that's the truth. Nobody really knows except you. If it's special to you, I promise you it'll be special to somebody. And if you put the best of yourself into your work and you commit to sharing that with as many people as possible, that is both the recipe for creative excellence and the recipe for commercial success. And it's that simple. And it's that difficult. And never forget what I said earlier about step over people. People tell you crap or you books are rubbish or whatever it is. Just go bigger. Go to a bigger publisher. Go to a bigger city. Go to a bigger country. And you keep going and going until you, until you succeed. Don't ever let someone say you can't because you can. I would say that. Very elegantly put. I um, It's going to inspire me. I want to take this podcast as big as it can go. I've had some success. I've topped the charts <laughs> once. I want to do it again. Nice. Um. But yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Monster episode. That was amazing. We'll, we'll talk sometime in future. And um, please know I'm grateful for, to you, sir. And nothing but the best for your book mate. going forward. And happy, but, many happy Thanks, Mitch. Mate, I appreciate yeah. you reaching out. Thank you for giving me your time and a nice long conversation. And uh, to all your fans out there, thanks for supporting Mitch. Um, it matters. Um, and uh, your time matters. So thank you for supporting Mitch. Thank you for supporting me. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you again. See you all on the next one. Bye for now.